Right then, welcome or welcome back to the Midnight Podcast, where we have super in-depth, authentic, super transparent, open conversations with an array of different entrepreneurs from many different industries. I really want to make this a podcast known for going super in-depth on loads of topics that other podcasts are scared to speak about. I feel like most stuff out there these days is just super surface level, super vanilla, and doesn't really answer the questions that viewers and listeners want to hear. So that's what we're trying to do. Keep it real and keep it raw. I'm sure you'll get a huge amount of value listening or watching the pod wherever you are. And if you do, don't forget to subscribe, recommend it to a friend, leave a like and a comment and just let us know what you think. And yeah, really hope you enjoy this episode. Right then, back with episode 22 of the Midnight Pod. Um, I think this is going to be a fucking interesting one. Hmm. One of... In my opinion, the most impressive entrepreneurs we've had on in terms of oh, shit thanks, you've dude. actually done. Um, <laughs> thanks, dude. Alex Packham. It is, as they say, Packham. Name. Yeah, yeah, you got it right. From Content, Content Cal, um, which is a software company. We can dive into all that in a minute. I actually first met Alex, well, one time, four years ago yeah. in San Diego, I think yeah. it was. Yeah. When we were very drunk. Yeah, random. You had fairly recently started the business. Yeah. And you recently got acquired by Adobe, which is fucking, that's like Champions League shit for entrepreneurs, I think. Um, Thanks, dude. And yeah, I was going around the world in my dropshipping days. Yeah, I remember. Not paying tax probably properly at the time. And yeah, it was good fun. No, I think I was there. You I went were, to like LA, then yeah. New York and a few random things. I remember speaking to you thinking, damn, your fans living the dream. <laughs> yeah, it was just, it, 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 it was in hindsight, to of be course fair. It, is, it yeah. was, it was good. I was 22 at the time, getting fucking old now. But um <laughs> Yeah, content, Cal. Yeah. You've built a software company over the past, what, six years? Six years, pretty much all in. I had an agency before and then ran social for two corporate businesses as well before that. But yeah, I'd say really the journey, I always reference different times. The whole thing is 10, 10 11 years, like my career yeah. so far. But and you're, yeah, how, you're how old now? I'm 31. So you think you're old. <laughs> yeah, true. You've made a shitload of money doing something you like, which I feel like that's what every fucking entrepreneur watching dude. this shit. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah, that's like the fucking golden trophy but I guess first question as usual and you've kind of already dived into it but mm. just five minute rundown the who journey. you are what you do and then I try and keep these like fairly chronological I suppose and then yeah. we can dive into like the start the, the middle the end currently okay and, cool and loads of shit that I want to know because yeah. I think it's fucking fascinating no go for it yeah so I mean it's typical entrepreneurial background selling stuff in the playground very very focused on concept of or getting a lot of fun out of the concept of making money for something basically from like 14 years old I'm going way back but like very very typical background from an entrepreneur perspective always doing something in the playground selling sweets or whatever yeah studied business and always for whatever reason which runs through my family in some ways like there's quite a few entrepreneurs and stuff like that in my family um just fascinated with business like growing growing teams building products selling stuff not so much tech in like my younger days but like just the concept of running your own business yeah was fascinating to me um and then skipping like obviously a few years forward when i was at uni which was jesus like 11 years ago uh probably way longer than that actually like 12 13 14 years ago god i'm getting old yeah i realized basically that every purchase decision i made was based on something i saw a mate do on facebook and this was when Facebook wasn't new, new, but it was newish mm. and certainly popular. But Twitter was pretty new. There was no Instagram. So it was early yeah. social days. And uh, it just literally hit me like I am literally going to that bar because I've seen that person there on Facebook. 
I'm going to that restaurant because I've seen that person there on Facebook and I'm buying Abercrombie and Fitch because I see my mates wearing Back Abercrombie and Fitch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like, it just literally hit me like a train that this is a very exciting way for companies to market themselves. And then I went in like a deep, you know, typical like research hole for like days and days and days of like what, what is social media marketing before it was really a thing. Early days, Gary V. Very early days, Gary V. Yeah, yeah. Mari Smith, if anyone's come across her, but and she's worked great. We work with her, but like just super early stuff. And then I realised that businesses had no idea, and they still don't in reality. Many of them don't anyway, but had no idea how to do this. Like just mm. literally create a Facebook page, post on it every day, post content. Why would I do that? Why would anyone be interested? So I started to monetize myself by managing Facebook pages, Twitter pages for small businesses. Did that for like two years while you were in uni yeah Yeah. while I was at uni and then made good money didn't make like loads of money but made good money for uni like I was Mm. able to basically more than sustain myself and have fun I was way you know more enjoying that than I was doing any studying although I did graduate didn't drop out yeah and then I got a job as the first social media person at Odeon and I was probably one of the first people with a social media job in the UK I put myself in that bucket of people anyway Again, this is like eleven over eleven years ago. So people were getting like social media manager jobs, but people would take the piss and be like, "You get paid to go on Facebook all day on behalf yeah, of Odeon," which is weird. Um, and then did two years there, had a great time learning all the typical stuff you'd expect like in in a job. Um, was super passionate about social media marketing. Odeon, you know, cinema is a great brand to work with in those. Where days. were you based at this point? I was in London, so yeah, grew up in um, Winchester. University was Cardiff. I went home for two weeks and then had the job at Odeon. Like I was straight into work, yeah, yeah. no gap year, no nothing. Like very focused on getting the job and cracking on. So I was in London, uh, typical stuff, living with mates, having fun as well. It was brilliant. And then left Odeon because there was no really place for me to go there. Like I did two years. I was like, right, time to move on. Went to Now TV. Everybody knows what Now TV is yeah, in the UK. Sky, now yeah. anyway, yeah, exactly, yeah. Sky. But when I was there, 50 people in a room, now TV was like it didn't, wasn't a product. It was like a website with a few mm. few videos on there. It was like a startup within Sky, and they invested so heavily in it. And I was there for two years. It went from fifty people to like nearly a thousand. Mm. So it was like being in this scale up within this corporate environment, and yeah. I just loved it. I was like, if this is what a startup life is like, and I started like reading about like the lean startup, Tim Ferriss four hour work week, yeah, yeah. like Classics. studying that life. I was like, if this is what it can be like, I'm I'm ready to like start my restart my entrepreneurial journey I was always going to do a company um, I never was going to like work in what you typically call corporate life in my early 20s for a long time I just wanted to get the experience left Sky after two years had a great time started an agency Odeon and Sky first two clients got loads yeah. of SME clients built it up built it up built it up and then learned how to run a business brought some people in who were more experienced than I was but built a team and built built a proper business uh, doing social media, like doing social media for companies. Was that like paid ads or like ads, organic shit? Organic ads, yeah. websites. SMMA, but back in the day. Exactly. Now everyone fucking does everyone. it. Everyone, exactly. And then that's when Content Cal was like a true idea. So I'd always had the idea, even from Odeon, because you'd have spreadsheets, you'd have a Hootsuite or a Buffer or whatever. Yeah. God knows how many other tools. You were combining all this stuff together. And I was like, there's got to be a way where I can create content and actually post it and look at my analytics and measure it and all the rest of it in one place without going for like 10 different things. And then when when I was working with SMEs in my agency days, it was very clear, you can be Sky, you can be a small coffee shop, or you can be a mid-sized business 
everyone has to publish content. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a process um, and everyone needs to do it. It just... For some people, the process is really big, long, and complicated. And for some people, they just want to automate everyday scheduling. Um, yeah. And that was really where we were born. We were probably one of the first tools to do that in like a calendar way, where you know everyone was doing it in like a queue, which sounds really basic, but like user experience yeah. and software is so important. And um, yeah, we just started a separate business, but like separate to the agency, raised 150 grand from friends, family, couple of connections from Sky Days. Yeah built a prototype, sold it to Sky and Odeon, sold it to all of my agency clients, did an accelerator, this is, this is save the, like, the longer version, but like merged mm. the agency software business together after this accelerator. How big was the agency when you started? Uh, yeah, I can talk about that. That was like people-wise 20-ish people, probably at our peak 30, over it's a million in sales. Yeah, yeah decent, decent size, profitable. Yeah, yeah, good clients. Good. Um, all of it was retainers, so it was all mm. consistent, which was sick. Um and then, yeah, merged the two together, raised a million and then another million. So did two rounds of like angel funding. So like two million over 18 months to really like turn the agency into Content Cal, yeah. which was a tough flight journey. Like going from agency to software business, which is one of the questions I get all the time from people building businesses now. Like that is hard. Switching business models is tough and people and stuff like that. And then... I'm going like round in time. This start, if you think the start of the journey was sort of 2015, when I say I went, did the accelerator, that was 16. So 2017, 18, we'd made the pivot, if that makes sense. Like Mm. we were a software business. So really 18, 19, 20, 21 is when we properly ran it as a SaaS company content cal. Yeah. So it's a messy journey, but like no journey in business is clean. So (laughs) yeah, definitely ride. Yeah. And so you were 25, 26 when you started it? I was 24 when I started 24. the agency. Yeah, 24. Yeah, give or take, yeah. And then was it like, were you, you have like a techie software background? I know, because for example, if I went to fucking start, if I wanted to start software, I, w- I wouldn't know to start myself. Mm. No, like- my background was very organic in it. Like I just thought I could do it. Like I'd built websites and in my Sky days got exposed to tech a lot. Because yeah. I was like the team was all on one floor. It wasn't like tech was in like another room. Like everyone was together, and I was always fascinated by it. Mm. And I read the Lean Startup, and that gives you like the mentality around it. But I'm not a tech. I don't build. I don't code. Like I don't yeah, code. Yeah. Anything. But if you're building a product, and I would say if you're natural at like sketching stuff out, which is I just scribble out user experience stuff, which I didn't even realize yeah. at the time was a thing. I was just drawing what I thought would be useful and good. When you start speaking to designers, they're like, what, "Like, do you know user experience?" And I'm like, "I've got a clue. I just know that this yeah, is what I would use." Sense. Yeah. So that's that's it, really. It's all like raw and organic, and then you learn it over time that you've got skills and stuff that it actually fits in a box. And did you like? How long was the transition from agency retainers and all that to mm. a finished product that you got them onto? And then, and then secondly, when did you like cut off the agency retainer stuff? Good question. Was, was it gradual? It was quite gradual, but basically. I would say from like from zero product to some sort of decent finished product and then actually having clients use it and stuff was probably a year. But like people would come, some people are more tolerant of like slightly ropey software than others, if that makes sense. So yeah. in the early days, if they're a believer in you and they like you, they'll, they'll use software, which is a little bit buggy. After a year and you're like known in the market, even a tiny bit, people have expectations that it's always going to work. So, yeah. and this was before software was, consumerized like slack you know you don't get any mm. problems with slack right and most software is now flawless whereas even five years ago there was still a lot of like okay software yeah um and so 
it was gradual for that, but it was about a year before we got like proper what I'd call like software stuff. And, and the, was, was this before Buffer and Hootsuite? Because off camera, so I've, I've used Buffer and yeah. Hootsuite. I've yeah. never actually used Content Cow. <laughs> you got to use it. Yeah. Uh, this is way after them. I mean, Buffer would have been around, I don't know, five years at least before. Yeah. Hootsuite the same, if not longer, maybe. I don't know which one was first. So did you consciously come in thinking... Yo, fellas, quick one. First bit of promo for the pod. You may or may not have heard, I released a fucking e-com course a few months ago. Basically spent like six months making it because I was in between businesses, as you probably know, if you follow my shit. I must say, 12 hours long, it's fucking quality content. I was going to drop it at like 1,500 quid with some bullshit guru-y webinar and all that rubbish but as you know it's not my main thing i'm working on a new brand right now very very fucking much in the trenches which is why i think is actually a better course than everything else out there because it's built on real experience of my brands in the past and my current one i think it's super super valuable if you're interested in e-com you're already in e-com and you want it to get into e-com zero to one starting a brand from scratch then definitely worth investing in link is in the bio of this video or podcast spotify apple music wherever the fuck you're listening or watching and enjoy the rest of the pod you know, was the intent to try and do something different, doing a different market? Like, or were you just like, fuck it, we'll just join the party and do something similar and try yeah, and get there? Yeah, we get like us so many times. Like, if I think about it logically now, like I said about the calendar, we were, the, we were until really recently the only product centered around a content calendar. Yeah. I, I want to post Hence this much in a week. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's what it says on the tin. Um, literally, that was as, that was our USP for ages. As a calendar, you could see stuff in the way that you wanted to plan it. It wasn't a queue. You know, it was built like a social media content calendar. And so it wasn't that we wanted to go out and destroy either of them or like some anti-competitive thing. It was like, we think, or I thought, people want to work in a calendar because I worked in a calendar and like that's the yeah. way it had to be done. And it turned out that they all ended up building calendars, <laughs> funnily enough. And You think you're just building it for you primarily to yeah. start with? Yeah, for sure. But knowing, because I was very plugged into the social media world, that yeah. lots of other people weren't like me. Not everybody, but lots. So... That was our like USP. We built loads, obviously, off the back of that. But mm. yeah, it's a funny one. But like the but to your agency point, we had to fade it slowly over time because it's just tough. Like it just takes time to change business model. But there does become a day, especially if you're morphing. You have to be like yeah, the agency. But they is. like legally two separate separate businesses. Like how how did you view it? They were at the start. They were totally separate. Yeah. And then when I did this accelerator, we merged them together. And what was that accelerator? Sorry, more details. It's called the Accelerator Academy. It's London based. If you ever like doing a seed startup, yeah. like from scratch, and you haven't got that much experience, they are mm. awesome. I've raved about them loads on LinkedIn and stuff like that. Yeah, run by a guy called Ian Merricks. Yeah, if you really are starting from ground zero and you just want to learn how to build a tech business from scratch, raise capital, etc., definitely worth looking so into. Is that where you got the funding from initially? That I got 150 grand initially from friends, family, contacts. Yeah. And then all the other angel rounds came off meeting people through that and then meeting people like from interest yeah. and stuff afterwards. Uh, yeah. How much equity are you giving away at this point if you're raising 150K? Because I feel like, I mean, like I was saying to you, I've done similar size, slightly bigger recently. Yeah. And I didn't really know where the fuck to start. Yeah. Some people were telling me to value this thing at 50 grand. And yeah. I just said, well, that's yeah. not going to work. And other people were saying, push it as high as possible. And yeah, yeah, it's and a really somewhere tough in the middle was so the, the end. Yeah, there's no like right or wrong. Um, and some people might say that having the highest valuation is right. Well, not always, because if you don't get the traction after that in the early days, you might end up doing down rounds or flat rounds. And that mm. doesn't show like progress in VC land and stuff. So I probably gave away, and again, this was a different era, I think 15-ish, probably maybe even a bit more can't quite remember but like I could have gone higher even then for example and 
again, it just depends on how you run your business. Yeah. And also, if you're second time, third time founder business person, you're always going to be able to raise more money. And therefore, to get the optics right, you know, you typically don't really want to give away more than 20% around. So first time around, you might raise 250, 300 grand for 20%, let's yeah. say, whatever the number is. Mm. But next time, you might literally be able to raise 10 million for 20%. It's just the way the game goes, like when you've got yeah. track record. And getting that 150, mm. do you think, was that because you had the agency business? And like, there's incredibility from that? Like, yeah. do you think you could have done that, you know, straight out of uni, for example? No, nah, no chance, I think. Because again, even, well, that was nearly 10 years ago, I suppose eight years ago, like it was a different world. It's, which sounds so ridiculous because that's not that long yeah. in time but like people weren't seeding businesses for even 150, 200 grand here, there mm. and everywhere whereas now people are doing it multiple times a day at the end of the day do you know what I mean there's yeah. hundreds of businesses if not thousands being started every day seeded with a couple of hundred grand but, but do you think even now for I mean assuming someone's because a lot of people watching I know will think this um, yeah say they're I don't know 21, 22 they haven't really built a business yet but are passionate about I don't know whatever brand whatever it is yeah, do you yeah. think someone like that can raise money or is it now yes yeah now yes like and does that have to be from network or is that do you think you can actually get money off like yeah you can get money no for sure there's some funds that literally will do it on a numbers game there are some probably not so much in the UK so they'll come in time but in the States uh, I can't remember the platform but they literally will go as long as you put us a deck together in this format and you yeah. provide us this type of forecasts which is not like it's relatively basic stuff mm. we will just wire you $100,000 yeah there's no questions there's no due diligence they just do it on a numbers game they've got hundreds of millions to invest and they just know that it's going to work they take 8% flat or whatever it is. there's no deal it's just yeah, like yeah. this is what we take we give you this crack on so I think now the game's changed. I think the world has embraced the concept that the more people that start businesses, the better. Whereas it was reserved for people who really knew, like the legals behind it, the structures. Like we were talking about this before. Mm. Like now, you don't even need a lawyer to start a business. You've gone see legal. Yeah, that's why I started. Doing so yeah, it. exactly. So the is commoditized starting a business, which is a good thing because the more people do it, the better, and the yeah. more chances there are of successes. So I think you can definitely do it nowadays. But yeah, ten years, even six years ago. They're just not not quite as easy yeah yeah and 150 grand then starting a software company because I'm, I'm very ignorant to software mm. where are you spending that and how long does that how long does that last is that did that get you to a, a decent product we could actually start generating revenue or mm, yeah but it's again different era so in my world when i was doing it 150 grand gets you what i'd call a decent prototype slash minimal lovable product Everyone yeah talks about minimal vibe yeah, yeah. nowadays it needs to be lovable. mlp yeah mlp exactly and it would do that right and you could do there are two ways of doing that you could do that in three months you could burn all the money and do it in three months mm. i did it over the course of nine-ish months give or take so more iterative and building product at any scale small big is all about user feedback yeah. and looping that feedback and those suggestions into your product like again whether you do that in three months or nine months it can't it's got to be a little bit of intuition or a reasonable amount of intuition but from that point onwards when you're out you've got to get feedback and get all those features and functionality built yeah. in um, but you can get a decent product for that but it is prototype territory it's not going to scale but you're going to have to rebuild it at some point yeah and if you've got an idea then say I've got an idea for certain app and I've got 150 grand to spend mm. what, what am I doing tomorrow morning to make that happen am I literally going on Upwork and hiring an uh, Eastern European developer or is it if you're doing that tomorrow something? 
Yeah, good question. What's the best way to start? I would say if you're that way inclined, which again, we were talking about this, sketch out roughly what you want. Mm. Even It doesn't have to even be remotely perfect, but if you've got the ex- like the, whatever the expertise you're trying to build the app as, yeah. sketch out what you want. First of all, find, don't know no inner developers, find a UX UI designer that you can partner with that can build you a designed clickable through prototype. So, you know, like basically take your scribbles and turn into something you can click through. No tech whatsoever. Take that, <clears throat> take that to 50 to 100 people who are potential customers, show them the designs and iterate in designs because you're not building anything at that point. And yeah. it, it will take three hours to get 20 design amends. Whereas mm. if you start with tech, you're building a technology product which you don't even know is legit. Right. Yeah, yeah, so true. do everything in design for as long as you physically can. And then when you get enough people going, I would pay for this, just looking at your design files or clicking through your prototype. Who are those people at this point? Mates, customers, networks, introductions. Yeah. Anyone who you think would buy or use the app, basically. And mm. then you they will give you their time, like proper time, not like flick through for 10 minutes. Yeah, I think it's all right. Like, I will look at this properly for you and give you some proper feedback. Like, I don't like this button here. Yeah. This doesn't make sense as a feature. This is amazing. Like, whatever that is. And then once you've got to a stage where your feedback is overwhelmingly positive, like 70, 80%, yes, this is like great. I would use mm. this or buy it then start talking to developers and say, right, I think I've got, well, not I think, I've got the scope of what I want to build. Whether it's Upwork, whether you go to a web agency, whatever, <clears throat> only build it once you've validated it and design, because you can do that for like 10 grand. Yeah. You can design an entire product, which is fully like ready to be built. So 10 grand sounds like a lot, but it's better than not spending the 150 yeah, yeah, and then true. throwing it away. So that would be my advice. Like start loose, start flexible, only build when you really need to, when you're ready to build it. <clears throat> yeah do you think I mean we're going to software I suppose like one mm. point I think I'm I suppose in like e-com which is the world I know and probably mm. more people watching this than, than software yeah it feels like well certainly maybe it's not the best way to do it it's how I've done it like I put something out into the market and then get the feedback and yeah. change it but obviously yeah but that, that's because you can build a product for you know if you're drop shipping like no you don't even need a product yeah, and exactly, even if you're making yeah. your own product you can do it for like a few grand which yeah. most people can do but obviously in software, yeah, like you were saying, it's a bit it's different. Very much, kind of the opposite. You you can test the so concept. Expensive. Yeah, it is expensive. Yeah, you can. You know, mate. You can uh, you can test the concept. Shush. <laughs> or we can edit that out. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, you can test the concept of a software product without even building it, though. Same as you could with drop shipping. So, website, email sign up yeah, page. Yeah, yeah. Don't even have to buy anything. Pre-order if you want, type of thing, or put a put, put a deposit down. I mean, you don't do that in software, but like some sort of validation of the concept. But I because software is so expensive to build. Yeah. And if you get it wrong, same with anything, you lose people straight away. I've got a mate actually. I'm just mm. thinking. Yeah. Out loud, you should probably speak to him. He was on my podcast. Yeah. Guy called Adam Reed. I'm plugging him now. He's starting a software. He's trying to raise a load of money, actually. Really? You should definitely speak to him. Just put him in touch, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I was speaking to him about this, and he's made a load of money in e-com, but now yeah. he's building software for print-on-demand, which is the model he's used to build his e-com brands. Yeah. But he was yeah. like, fuck me, it's going to be so expensive. It is, I was yeah. like, okay, Jesus, yeah. No, I don't is. know that world. The thing is, like, you have to think of it as R&D, which not many people can get their head around. Like, building software takes huge amounts of research and development R&D, there's loads of government schemes as well where you basically can claim back 30% give or take of the cost. Yeah. Um, and 
you also have to get around the concept that you're not going to be profitable for a long time in reality. That's just the way a software business typically is. Yeah. If at all, <laughs> like if ever. And it has just fundamentally got this massive sunk cost. Whereas in e-com, well, you know way better than I do. I think you, I guess you can be profitable pretty quickly. Yeah, you'd hope so. Yeah, in most cases. What would you try and run a profit model on pretty quickly within the first three months? Well, months? yeah, I mean... Straight away? For this there. new brand I'm launching, yeah. Like, I would hope to be, like, break-even from month one in terms of, like... Like, yeah, granted, you'd have to put a bit of money into stock, but in terms yeah. of, like, operating profit or whatever, I'm not a fucking accountant, but... <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, as in, like, I'd want to spend 50% on marketing, roughly. Yeah. 20% on cogs, 80% gross margin, and then... Another ten percent on overheads, five percent on bullshit, and you yeah. shoot for a ten, fifteen percent net margin, hypothetically. Yeah, yeah. And then if you're scaling, maybe a bit less. Um, yeah. Which is what happened with Neon Beach when it was going well. Then it yeah, went to itself. Yeah. Um, but still, though, but yeah. you, you cannot do that building a software product. Yeah. It is fundamentally, I would say, impossible. And if you were trying to be profitable month one, you're probably in the wrong space. Like it's just unless you've got some massive enterprise order of like mm. a million quid building custom software or whatever but like proper scaled software SaaS that's not possible yeah so, so how did you get first customers then beyond kind of network and people that you already had so yeah, and, and how finished was the and how good was the product yeah once you shipped it so to speak is that the term yeah shipped it yeah it was out yeah no so it was up yeah it was live so after network so firstly standard like you said basically is network like everyone you know etc I'm not a sales background at all. So I'm very like what they would call subject matter expert founder. Mm. I understand social media content, etc. When I did the accelerator, one of our first investors literally said that to me, sat down, sat me down and said, you're a good like relationship salesperson. Like I said, an agency, like people want to buy from you, Alex, and believe in your expertise. Yeah. But you selling software, which is quite transactional. There's no real relationships. Like, do you want this software? Mm. This is the price bang done. He was like, you're not that person. So you need to bring someone in. And so he introduced me to a guy called Andy Lambert, who was part of Content Cal's like founding team. Like great sales background, wanted to also join a startup at this stage where he can make a meaningful difference, but yeah. bring his sales skills, but do other stuff as well. And he's just a brilliant guy, but like very customer focused, very people focused. And to be perfectly honest, what he did was he like downloaded my LinkedIn, took my email inbox and then went like two layers around it you know what I mean about people who were connected so is this B2B primarily this is all B2B yeah, yeah all B2B and he just ran what you would pretty much now call like typical outbound process just built emails got meetings mostly asking for feedback in the early days because we needed feedback and then he would you know at the end of lots of meetings be like do you want to buy it and yeah. people would say yes so it was it wasn't me if that makes sense that's one of the key things which we again we were talking about offline like mm. that was one of my first realizations or journeys or steps in around that you've got to bring like experts in a certain fields that that are better than you at whatever that is and andy got us our first what i would call true 100 plus customers and it was hustle it was literally yeah. linkedin meetings for like 50 quid a month so bear in mind yeah I was going to say so like how much were they paying the first customers next to nothing yeah 10 quid yeah. a month in some instances yeah. so like you, yeah, there's this always famous phrase do this do uh, do the unscalable in the first instance yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so true and it was like a magic to witness him do it he was caning meetings constantly um, shout out to Andy for that but yeah. 
you've got to do that to get the traction. And then once that gets repeatable, then you start bringing more people in. You invest more in marketing. Again, you know this, but like once you start getting some brand value, mm. people start recognizing who you are. You become like a name, a mini name or a mini brand, SEO credibility. All of that stuff starts to come into play as you raise more money and spend more. But like the first hundred customers, old school, proper old school stuff. Yeah. yeah. So at this point, because... Like how quickly would you run out of money? Because I, mean, I, I want to come on to a billion things around that, but yeah, yeah. Like, <clears throat> is that scary or is it? I mean, how does that work in software? So you raise the hundred and fifty grand. Yeah. You mentioned then there was two. You raised another two million over time. Yeah, we like, did. Was yeah, that two years? Give or uh, take. Yeah, yeah. Was that two years later? Over two years. So right. like one hundred and fifty, then give or take a million a year, like nine months after the hundred and fifty was gone. So I had a million quid, which was good. So that's like yeah. that's a year's worth of cash, and then again probably another million, which lasts us give or take a year again, and then we did another round. We did like a couple of bridges, and then we did a couple of VC rounds. So this is this took me time to learn this basically. Mm. So building your business where your sales can go like that, but your cash goes like that is a really hard thing to get your head around. So, yeah, right, yeah, for me as well. Yeah. I'm not in software, but it's right. fascinating. This is, an, this is by design. Yeah. So you are designing a business that sales look fucking awesome, but your cash looks horrendous. And also with investors, obviously, who might have come from a different era where that doesn't make any sense <laughs> because mm. you think most companies' sales go like that and profit will continue to go a bit like that, whereas you're going like this and there's no cash. You, it's a very hard thing to learn. And then, it, yeah, like you said, is it nerve wracking? Yes, in like in my early 20s, watching your cash balance like go from high numbers to next to none yeah. in business terms was yeah, terrifying. Tell me about it yeah. this time last year. Exactly. And what I would say you learn much later and as you go like again through like the process and I bought in an FD at some point, I can't remember when, but like that was life changing. Mm. You realize that that is a, that is part of the plan it's part of the process it's how you build software and as conveyed in the right way to the right people that is logical it sounds ridiculous to say in some ways but it's logical that you can build an amazing book of revenue burn a lot of cash in the process but once you've got that business in the right place and through all the relevant like accountancy things as well that is worth like a lot of money to people plus the ip and everything else so it is absolutely terrifying regardless on a human level to be running out of money constantly in your business but uh, when you get your head around it and know, you've got to know when you need to fundraise, allow six months for that process to get cash in bank and factor that into your cash flows and models and stuff like that. But again, at the first instance, mate, I was just going out, raising money from people being like, can you put, give us, you know, give us this, give us that. We're raising 600 grand. I'll give you 20K. Cool. Can I have it now, please? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's just, again, it's just back to the hustle stuff. But So year one then of Content Cow, what, what were the numbers like? And and then and also how much had you raised at that point? Yeah, to give like an indication of scale. Yeah, can't go into loads of details, but like high hundreds of thousands, like in terms of revenue in the first few years. I can't remember exactly, but and bear in mind it's recurring revenue, so yeah, it re- the compounding effect of recurring revenue, like compounding in general, is like the miracle of the modern world. Mm. But like you don't start the year from zero. You always start the year from a base of whatever your last month's annual recurring revenue was. So yeah. that's one of the most like blessed things yeah, in software. True. You've always got cash coming in no matter what. So you can always run the business theoretically. You can't never not run out of money, but there's always an amount coming in. So you can be quite sensible with cash flow. 
Um, more, what I can probably go more into is like percentage and growth terms. So we always did a hundred to two hundred percent year on year growth. Yeah, and that's actually, to be honest, way more important than what the actual numbers is in the early days. Like, can you grow that quickly? Can you continue that growth as the numbers get bigger? Obviously, two hundred percent. That's tripling every year. So, say yeah. for example, your million quid. That's basically getting to three million quid. That's hard. That is mm. really hard. Um, but basically maintaining those levels of growth means you should, in theory, be able to raise money. And that was always the goal. Again, like it's not about necessarily a revenue target, it's growth in order to raise the next round. And that's, again, a very different way of running a business. It's not like growth for profit so I can fund X, Y, and Z for my own cash flows. Yeah, yeah. Can I burn X to get to 200% growth so I can raise a million quid or whatever the number is? So you're building a business on that type of metric and then all the other stuff around it. <clears throat> Yeah. But um, planning for a business like that, like I said, now feels incredibly natural to me. But unless you've been well versed in it, it's like it makes no sense logically. Like I keep saying, like burning yeah, cash just makes definitely. no sense. Yeah. Right. So coming on to well, expanding on that, like mm. software, because yeah, like I always think about ecom. I look at e- ecom acquisitions all mm. the time. Like mm. you read about, I don't know, fucking. Or like valuations and mm-hmm. stuff and, and there seems to be like two buckets there's like bedroom brands which which sell for an EBITDA multiple yeah or like slightly bigger ones which sell for a larger EBITDA multiple so instead of maybe like a three multiple they sell for a 10 to 15x multiple yeah and then you get <clears throat> these mad ones where they sell for five to 10x revenue and they're losing money mm-hmm. and typically from my understanding that's because they're bigger and it's a strategic buyer like yeah, 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 I don't yeah. know the hook group or fucking yep. PepsiCo buys them yeah but that's e-com which by the sounds of it's quite different to fucking software and like is there any software business which is actually like profitable like at least early or is it literally just the unwritten or written rule yeah that that's how it goes so I would say the way one of the ways to think about it, there's no right, there's no like right answer to this. By the way, there's no one yeah. like golden way, but like enterprise software, which would really mean you're selling to big businesses. So you're selling like hundred grand plus contracts. There's no, you know, they pay annually. So like Salesforce and shit. Yeah, like Salesforce. Yeah, exactly. Or HubSpot or well, HubSpot yeah. not so much, but like there's loads of versions. But enterprise sales, which means but average contract value is 100k plus, and you have to pay up front. And normally it's multi-year deals. So say for example, you're an enterprise software and a provider of let's just say it is a sales tool. You've got a two-year deal, so it's 200 grand, and the customer has to pay you up front. Yeah, there's no way out. <clears throat> that is a very solid way of building what I would call a profitable SaaS business. It's going to jump. Fucking <laughs> um, annoying. Dog. Because you can literally generate 200 grand of you know basically recurring revenue and it's a two-year contract and normally they'll automatically renew as well so unless the customer literally cancels within three months yeah. at the end it's going to automatically renew so if you think about that and you're an enterprise salesperson and you can do 10 deals a year and then you've got 100 plus sales people doing those types of deals so yeah like yes you can build an, a, a profitable business because this is where the magic of software comes in. Once you build like a mature product with whatever the features are, yes, mm. you need to continue to innovate, obviously, but there becomes a time in the lifespan where if the market's big enough, there is no supply issues because you've got the software. It literally exists. Yeah. It doesn't cost you any real money to create the next instance for the next customer. So you can literally duplicate your product 100 times in the same yeah. day. 
and there is no movement there's no product going anywhere yeah. you're charging 200 grand a pop let's just say for example so when you think about those maths absolutely you can build um profitable software but it typically happens later in like the life because you've got to build the product obviously mm. if you take more like low-end consumer style businesses whether that's SaaS or consumer products nine pounds a month ten dollars a month whatever yeah. that's harder to get profitable because you still have to spend a similar amount of money not like the same but a lot of money to build the product and then if it's month-to-month contracts instead of annual or quarterly there's this thing called um, CAC to LTV ratio, like customer acquisition cost to lifetime customer value. Yeah. Really, co- it actually gets like super complicated maths, and then you get like cohort analysis. Like every month, you look at the individual customers by month. Like there's a whole structure around it. Very, very hard to make that profitable in any short space of time. So you're building really to your point around like a strategic purchase, mm. building a product which is like a great solution for a problem. That's the key thing. You're building a model which definitely still generates revenue, but it might take you two years to pay back the customer acquisition cost. Say it costs you 600 quid to acquire the customer, but you're only charging 10 quid a month. I can't yeah. do that maths off the top of my head, but you're talking like two to three years to get the money back. Yeah. So you're building up a book really of great software, loads of customers in volume, and eventually, yes, break, break even slash profitability, but really burning burning money and like losing money for a long time. And then the play really for that type of model, most most instances is that because your software is so great at fixing this problem and you've proved X, Y, and Z in terms of customer points, revenue points, whatever, big company comes along and says, we need that. We don't have like that software yeah. solution. We'll buy it for a premium. Thank you very much. Give us the software. Give us the team. We'll integrate it. Rather than you having to spend another ten million dollars like marketing this for your next round, yeah, like, just, like got, the economies of scale. To we got twenty five thousand customers, yeah. Bosch, and typically those like deals, you know, that acquiring business once they get the integration done and stuff will make what they paid for you every year. Mm. So it makes sense, but like, there's no like I said, there's no one way of doing it. Like it's just different different ways different tactics different strategies and i would say yeah. that again with hindsight now given like the process i've been through building this like ip style deal this similar to what we've done really like content care was bought to be scaled there's great like stuff in that because you can build a fantastic product you don't necessarily ever get to the stage of profitability but you get bought into like a brilliant business to go and fulfill your dream and mission but it kind of like fulfills not fulfills it for you but it gives you the scale like you said at the click of a button yeah but if you go down the true VC route or whatever you need to do to raise money, there's great stuff in that as well. And theoretically, you can build a bigger, more valuable business, but it's going to take you 10, 20 years kind of thing, mm. realistically. So like I said, there's no right or wrong, but it's quite, like I said, it's a weird, unique business model, basically. Yeah. There's so many questions I'll ask off the back of that. I'll try and do one by one. But um, going answers. back to scaling a SaaS business thing, because obviously that like e-com typically like now you'd probably say a mix of facebook google and tiktok ads yeah maybe a bit of brandy stuff if you're above 10 million revenue like yeah influence a lot of crap what's the approach with SaaS? i mean ultimately same principles in it you get someone to a landing page and they're mm. putting their credit card in like is it a similar approach it's pretty like similar media buying all yeah that sort of shit? i'd say the biggest differences are you need um, how to phrase this reviews and like advocates probably earlier so it's, I wouldn't f- say it's similar to influence marketing for consumer or yeah. e-com 
but you need like reviews on G2 Crowd or on blogs What's like that Captera one Captera exactly yeah. yeah but there believe it or not there are like bloggers who review social media tools like there's there's a niche for everything yeah so like you need to work with those characters and those people and get their support and make them believe in what you do even when you pay them we all know what influencers good ones still even if they're getting paid only back the mm. stuff that they like so you've got to get those because you've got to get the credibility SEO I would say is probably more important in software than potentially in e-com particularly in the early days like you yeah. do need to try and rank for a couple of key terms because otherwise you're just you know you put in social media tool or something like that you're going to Hootsie Hootsuite you're going to see HubSpot you're just going to be mm. Salesforce I mean even Content Cow is still quite low on that scale Yeah. Um, so I would say SEO is key for a couple of key terms and then it is trying to get the paid media model to work but the golden thing in software is recommendations like driving word of mouth they call it product everyone calls it product leg growth now it's word of mouth marketing mm. which basically is building an unbelievable product that people want to tell people about so if we were working together and i was the social media manager and you were my boss and i was like matt i need to use this new tool it's called content cow it's yeah. literally saving me three days a week you'd go all right cool for 50 quid a month we'll do that but if, I, have to put, I put an affiliate link in the bio. Yeah, exactly. Cha-ching. Yeah. Thank you very much. But then I go, brilliant. I'm now going to tell all my social media mates about it. I'm yeah. the first, like, I don't know, the first hundredth user of this cool new platform. I need to tell everybody because that makes me look cool. Yeah. That, that is where it all comes down to. Like, word of mouth and recommendations is priceless in every business, but in software, massively, definitely. Your fellas, quick one. You may or may not have noticed there's been a bit of merch, so to speak, in recent episodes. We've got two different things. We've got some of the retro style OG neon beach posters that I designed like four years ago. You may have seen it on my Instagram. And then we've got some of the best selling OG viral style neon signs that basically did start that entire craze about two years ago now. So yeah, if you want to add something to your home office, your living room, just anywhere sick, basically, that you want to add that extra thing to and support the channel, then you can check that out. Link is in the bio, midnight.co forward slash shop and yeah just an aesthetic item to complement the process i suppose cheers for watching and enjoy the rest of the pod in terms of then who's like what was the team like in the early days off the back of that because i've worked with like agencies on a media buying perspective for <coughs> ecom and mm. a lot of people do mm. all these smma companies mm -hmm. but then i also hired someone in house which ends up being a nightmare mm. he's probably not watching this because he blocks you on everything <laughs> um but how how did that work for you? And, and what was the team like in the early days off the back of that? Yeah. So I've always been a believer in building teams. I would say m my best skill is building teams. Now mm. it takes time to learn that, obviously, like managing people. And it's like reverse engineering what you think is the right thing to do. So when you're younger, you think that being a specialist and being an expert in something is what's going to make you get a promotion or... Yeah level you up or what you want to be known for. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's what we've all got to do. But what you realize is when you get to a stage of management is that your role is about getting other people to fulfill their goals, hmm. like manage their output, get them to feel and be successful. And that is how you in turn are successful. So it took me a long time to learn, I would call it the art of management and like motivating people, but empowering others to achieve their goals within like the context of work is I would say the most important thing in building a business again talked about delegation so building teams and bringing people in for me has always been key and that is always around finding the best person you can obviously afford within budgets and stuff yeah. for marketing for sales for product for development 
not trying to be the expert at everything, taking the absolute opposite view, almost like reverse saying, I know nothing about that. And if mm. you don't, even if you do, great. But even if you do know coding, let's just say, for example, whatever, stop doing it and yeah. learn how to become a manager. Yeah, to be honest, I'm probably asking this because I've really struggled with this in the past. I'm struggling with it again now in a different context. It's like, firstly, and there's probably a lot of people who can relate, like particularly because I've come at e-commerce from like... I, I'm a creative at heart mm-hmm. more than a business person or whatever. And I've kind mm-hmm. of, you know, built a basic understanding, obviously a fucking P&L <clears throat> and cash flow yeah, yeah, yeah. and like the more boring stuff in my opinion. Yeah. But for example, with, with like kind of front end stuff, mm-hmm. I almost don't want to, like even in the past when I've like actually had revenue compared to my new thing, yeah. like I don't almost don't want to delegate it because I feel like I could do it better or like, it's it's my thing, and I, and I know that's wrong, and I know so, that's yeah. not scalable. Yeah, yeah. So so there's that, and then secondly, like now, so I've raised a bit of money for this new thing. Yeah, and I'm probably more conscious of not overspending because of what yeah. happened in the past business. Yeah. But then it's yeah. like, yeah, who should I hire first? Because I can technically do it on myself because I'm pretty yeah general resourceful guy. Yeah, particularly yeah. like front end stuff. Like yeah. I, I could launch. I could build the brand, the website, everything myself and yeah. get it going. Like yeah. even the product stuff, like, yeah. but then I'm like, at what point should I, like if I had to, off the top of my head, I'd probably think the first person I would be just a general marketing person that yeah. would nail the social media strategy, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But then it's like, even within that niche role, it's like, well, should I hire someone that's 21 and you can pay him 21 grand a year? Or should I be looking to hire someone that's like, worked in a FinTech startup and, do you know what I mean? Like, I know exactly what you where's mean. the tipping point between hiring to grow, but yeah. also not overspending, but then yeah. at the same time, you can't be like scared of spending. Cause, yeah, yeah, because otherwise you're getting nowhere, basically. Exactly. Yeah. That's so like five million questions. There's, there's, I one. can break the couple of those down though. So firstly, if you start a business, you have two jobs, like two very, very, very distinct jobs. One you're going to do straight away, <clears throat> one you really have to learn and... Uh, I, Founder and CEO, people. Some people like to take the piss out of that, but like, there is a big difference between being a founder and being a CEO or whatever you want to call it, managing director. Yeah. So, as a founder, yes, you should be frugal. Yes, if you can do something well, of course you should do it. As an entrepreneur, that is the core of it. Like, yeah. you can do a lot there, and then you can do hats. it well. Exactly. So, do that for a period to the point where. Not even necessarily where, like, you know that someone else could do it for you, theoretically, but, like, where you know there's a breaking point that you can see you're going to have to do five different things. I, I think most people can only do three things really well. Like, as in, not as in learn them, but, like, three things yeah. in a day, max. That could be running a workshop, it could be running Facebook ads, and then it could be doing invoices. But, like, you won't be able to do more than that in a day well, over time. Mm. Like your brain just won't be able to. Yeah. And then, over time, you should be doing less. But, like... As a founder, you should get everything that needs to get done in the early stages because that's exactly what a founder should do. But over time, you've got to creep in almost percentage-wise if you think of it. Like, firstly, you're 100% founder. Month two, you're going to be 10% CEO. Month three, you're going to be 20% CEO, whatever it might be. And if you look at CEOs' jobs, they're not there to do anything. You are not there to physically do a task. You are there yeah. to lead people and process and projects. You're not. You don't do invoices. You don't like you don't do a task basically so if you creep in like your two job specs together and basically figure out like okay i'm putting my ceo hat on this afternoon 
theoretically, yes, I'm supposed to do invoices, so break that down as a task. Okay, that is a percentage of time, whatever it ends up being. Maybe depends on the context again, but you hire a finance manager to do invoices, and mm. then suddenly you hire a good one who can do invoices, but they can also do modeling. They can also do cash flow management. They can pay the bills. They can give you advice on stuff that you have no idea about. Yeah. You creep in these other people over time, and it could be social media, same thing. Basically, you bring someone in initially to do organic. It just happens they pick up paid. Then it happens they pick up analytics, whatever it might be. Like your job as the CEO is to basically get other people to do things that they are good at and specialist at and scale them, make them successful within the organization to the point where you're basically doing, let's say doing nothing, your job becomes 100% leading. Yeah. That's the key, basically, to like think of it in that way. Yeah, because another way of... Dog's going fucking mental. Another <laughs> way of phrasing the question, and it's something I think about a lot, especially with this new business, because I'm like, fuck, right. So something just feels different about this one. Like, I'm going to get this one right. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, there's a lot to argue that I should, more experience, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. But, like, what is the main thing from day one, in your experience, that I should think about to make sure to make sure that it's not another bedroom brand where it's mm-hmm. ultimately just me getting paid a lot with a yeah. bunch of freelancers. Yeah. And actually it can become, you know, potentially a hundred million pound yeah. Yeah, yeah, exitable yeah. business. And everyone says a hundred million, but yeah, it's a yeah, random. Yeah, yeah. So repeatable scale internally is key. You are, you have X hours where you can be productive, which is you are not repeatable and you are not scalable. But if you bring people in and you coach them, and like I said, depending on, I can't like, it'd be hard to break it down without going into the detail of what you should bring in first. But mm. you need to think within, I would I would actually argue for most people, especially if they've raised money and their plan is to raise more, after year one, you should be doing no foundry driven stuff. As a no founder, obviously you are still founder and you need to put your hat on every now and again and do that. Yeah. And probably you have one work stream which you really take over. Like for me, product was always, it's always been, I'm very close to it. I understand yeah. social media. But I don't do it. I don't do product at Content Cal. Like I've been mm. very active in it. But um, by the end of year one or 18 months or whatever it is that you have a someone who runs finance, someone who runs sales, someone who runs whatever, insert other department here. There's a role for everybody. Yeah. And if based on your experience, because I know the background, you need to push yourself out of your comfort zone to do that because you sound like someone who would very naturally slip back to doing the stuff that you know you can do. Yeah, definitely. Whereas learning how to manage and, and also lead. getting um, imposter syndrome hiring people. Yeah, because I did with the last business before yeah. I went tits up. Yeah, hire a few actual paye employees for the first time. Mm-hmm. But that was massively like I felt like a fucking like fraud because I was like these, these people are older than me. Yeah, well, two of them are older than me. Yeah, one wasn't that. Yeah, and I was like I almost felt like awkward telling them what to do. Not, yeah, well, because ultimately they wanted guidance. Yeah. I don't know that that was really hard to get around. It is hard to get around. No, there's no. I, yeah, I mean, I've been and through I, that journey. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, most people I've worked with are probably almost certainly or have been on some point in my life older than I am. Mm. Which, in reality, like when you actually boil it down, is not relevant at all. Yeah, <laughs> age is not important in reality. I mean, experience is important. Yeah, but. Mark Zuckerberg, like this is like a very like obvious choice, but like yeah. I don't know, what is he, 33, 36, something like that. Yeah. 
has 25,000, again, making up the numbers, but thousands of employees. How many of them are older than him? Most, probably, yeah. or a huge portion. But he's it's a just, lizard anyway, so don't care. No, exactly. But like, it's, it's not it's not relevant. It's, not, it's just not important, basically. So yeah. it's more about challenging yourself to learn how to lead and manage well, learning that as a skill and realizing that that is the most important skill you can probably learn in business, in my opinion. Because if you're starting something from scratch, like you said, if you want to build a 100 million plus business... That is that is all you'll do every day if you're successful, or mm. or change your job, be chief product, chief tech, chief sales, whatever. Have a niche role, and hire a CEO. Hire someone who has built a multi gazillion dollar econ business. Pay them a proper salary, give them a yeah. massive share package, and say, "I need you to run the business, and I'm going to do this." But you definitely think for the first year at least, it's full founder hat. Yeah. in the trenches even when you raise a bit of money I think so You're, and like I said over time it's not like months 10% but yeah. like percentage wise slowly start to decrease it but realise like what, what also what drives you like being a CEO or being anything like in general management has loads of ups and loads of downs at the end of the day like there's loads of pros and cons to managing lots of yeah. people if you get no if it really doesn't you know you, you get dragged down by managing people and working with them constantly and actually yeah. managing people is tough like then that role isn't for you. Like maybe you are the creative chief creative officer or something like that instead. Mm. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. But just bring someone in who knows how to do the other stuff, basically. Yeah. And that's all it is: is check checks and balances on your own skill sets and also what wakes you up every day, basically. Yeah. You've got to reverse engineer the goal if you want to get to 100 million. You will not get there by yourself. Yeah, because I was listening to a podcast fuck it I'm not crying I've got bloody hay fever or something oh, <laughs> chewing Jesus yeah. Christ um, yeah I think it was the my first million podcast or whatever yeah. I don't know I don't, I don't really listen to that many to be fair um, but it was when I was on the plane coming back from Dubai recently like it was one of those ones I think I'd had like three drinks on the plane like you get in that mo where like oh You're fucking in. come yeah. on <laughs> and it was on about starting at the end yeah and I'd always thought about that a bit but I was like I've never done that enough so then I basically made a fucking spreadsheet and this I want to come on to the fundraising thing in a minute off the back mm. of this I made a spreadsheet the other day and it was called like four to five year I don't know fucking like plan. set for life plan or whatever yep. it is the yeah, nine yeah, figure yeah. plan yep um, and I put in you know hypothetically what that looks like mm-hmm. as a founder equity money raised the numbers required probably ish very broadly speaking mm-hmm. it's obviously easy to put numbers in a spreadsheet yeah yeah, yeah. that's the right thing but, to do yeah. yeah it was like raise the 250 and I've done, done that yep do a million in revenue the first year break even whatever like for 2022 so like the first nine months which I think I can do mm-hmm. haven't done it yet but mm. that's the plan yeah that's the plan then it was yeah. like like it, it was like raise a million quid in a year then get it to like 10 million revenue then raise 5 million quid I take a million quid out whatever yeah, yeah. and then at the end it was I have 40% and we sell it for 100 million Yeah. so I've yeah. made 45 million or, you know hypothetically Pretty sell good, it to yeah. a strategic buyer I know what you mean yeah yeah. and at that point it's doing 30 million run rate you know 6 million EBITDA it's, yeah. it's the next big thing whatever yeah yeah. yeah. and then I was like alright you get all hyped fucking hell whatever this is great start showing my flat mate he's got his own spreadsheet and then I thought, okay, fine. Well, at least I've got a bit more of a plan got, exactly, than yeah. before. Yeah. But then, obviously, that takes time. That takes, well, it takes a successful business. But the fundraising part, mm. particularly in software, from, from what you're saying, it basically sounds like it's required. 
uh, yeah, to an extent. Al- almost well, Definitely more than e-com. Almost certainly. They're obviously in e-com, I think you can... You can fund it, yeah, yeah, through profit. It's like two questions extent. off this, but like firstly, what was the process after that more informal initial round, which is what I've just done as well. Yeah, like literally, yeah, fortunately, yeah. I've, I've got a good network mm. as a result of the other things, which I guess I, I got fucked financially and other thing, but I got a good network yeah, out of it. that's the way it goes. So yeah, that network is now some. paying yeah. dividends in another way. Yeah. So what was the process? So you've got the first year or whatever. Mm, mm. Basically... And who did you go to? Well almost like work no no I get it yeah so once you've gone through what I would call like your family and friends version rounds which is where you are basically and then you might have done you'll you'll probably do one more of those I reckon before you do a VC that's my best guess I did did a few you need someone who taps you on the shoulder and gives you a friendly bit of advice and basically says whatever your next like fundraiser is going to be or whatever your next stage is and this is when you're definitely generating revenue like you have a bit of a business whether it's half a mil or a mil or whatever like you're, you're up and running basically but you're planning a raise for someone to say you need a finance director like you don't need a full-time finance director you need someone two days a month who's going to basically put together your financial model they're going to make you understand how that works they're going to challenge you on all of your assumptions so you yeah. go i know that i can generate this many customers off this facebook spend okay well let's theoretically plan in 10 percent inflation on that for the next five years you go yeah. no i don't need to just let them do it. Like, mm. let them play with the model. Let them tweak it. They're called sensitivities. Like, again, this is two days a month. This is, again, partly a learning exercise for you, but also putting in these new structures in place, which will seem weird at the start, but you're putting in, like, what people want to see, i.e. investors, rigor, basically. And also, entrepreneurs, typically by nature, are very optimistic. Like, we always yeah. put the upside I call myself in. a cynical optimist. Well, there you go. So it's like, a term yeah. I've coined recently. Yeah. Well, I love that. But, like, this is so... I found this so hard, like, when I first working with an FD. They're pessimists. And they are paid to be pessimists. Yeah, accountants and all those people. The, with, give they, me the they hate worst life. outcome. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They love numbers. But when you go to raise money, you want to overperform. You never want to underperform. Yeah. And that typically means, and getting into the habit of, baking in a non-optimistic view which as an Mm. entrepreneur is hard so get that person in whoever they are find a really good one that you can gel with and listen to them and build in a proper financial model for five years yeah how do you find that person I I mine through network yeah mine through networks very similar to what you just said on fundraising if you Mm. go to someone who's invested in your round I mean I would say any like reasonably sizable business they have a part-time or a full-time fd yeah find a portfolio fd there's also this thing called the fd network i've never used it but there's like loads of them available basically mostly it's about finding someone qualified in like a financial accountancy thing i never know what they're called but like there's there's some things you have to do and then someone is just recommended or someone you've interviewed heavily and be like build me a five-year plan and then go through it many many times over and that plan will underpin your pitch to your investors so the funny thing about VC investing or any other investment round, whether it's Mega Angels, etc., is that five-year plan is like the guiding, solidifying, persuading document that you have thought hard about what you're trying to do. Tick. Don't need to go into any more mm. detail on it. Thank you very much. Yeah. Your pitch, your deck, your story, your narrative, your vision is what categorically will get people to invest, which is almost like the separate exercise. It's like- So is it like the heart and brains of the it's vision? It's exactly that. So the deck is all yeah. about build the biggest get everyone excited. vision you can. Yeah. Get people on a Zoom call nowadays or in a room mm. and get them absolutely buzzing at the thought of 
your business and you as an individual yeah and then be like boom i've also got this like awesome five-year plan have a look at that stress test it as much as you want and ask us whatever questions you like i'd like a million quid please like yeah that's the way that's the way it is and, I, and the, the, i was just talking about this today to someone your pitch is all about building the biggest best business you can you don't even need to get there like if you're going to raise money that's obviously the goal but if you get bought out along the way and you're trying to build a billion dollar business and someone buys you 50 100 200 whatever yeah it's still an awesome outcome right cry yourself asleep exactly yeah so mm. it's like i get really passionate about these things so i've had to do so many rounds and like there's like this amazing relationship you just said it like heart and mind to a certain extent but like model financials vision debt creative story they have to work hand in hand through the process and so I'm not geeking out over this, but like having a great That's relationship good. with an FD is is like lighting the fire under the investment story. Yeah. So that's what I would that's what I would always do, and I would almost start a business from scratch. Now, the, probably the first consultant role I would hire, even at your stage, would be like find me a portfolio FD one day a week. And typically, you're just paying them a day rate, or they get in a, a stock options. That's no, what normally, shit. day rate, but then if you if you like them, give them some stock options as well. Vest it over four years. They don't one year cliff. They yeah. don't stick around for a year, they get nothing. They stick around for a year, they get a tiny percentage. And if they stick around for four happy days, basically. Like yeah. ours was is amazing. He's like become a good friend. He's like, but we're so different personality wise. But like, if I was starting a business, I'd be like, hey, I need a model. Can you help me? And he would know exactly what I need because he knows I'm useless. At, I'm useless at that area. Yeah. But like, I know how important it is to like growing the business, basically, and funding it. So when you've got that then, so... And, and for myself, hypothetically, in a mm. year's time, if I go and try and do like a more formal round, whatever mm. you want to call it, Series A, whatever, blah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah. Like, are you typically going to XYZ fund to pitch or are people knocking on your door saying, we've got a shitload of money we need to deploy, blah, blah, blah? You'll get both. So um, you get the automated slash non-automated inbound. People coming to you saying, hey, love what you're doing. Can we talk? Yeah. What people forget, and I was rubbish at this at the start, is that you now need to qualify them. I mean, I was getting like PE firms that only invest a hundred million coming to me for content cow, and yeah. I was like, "Well, I'm raising 10 They were like, "Well, <laughs> this is pointless conversation because we only rest a hundred million at a time." So you need to qualify all of your inbounds because most of them are automated. And to be honest, an inbound investor, unless it's like actually introduced, like a random cold inbound, mm. very unlikely to come off in my experience. Just my experience. Like you get random emails. If you get like a, hey, me introducing you an investor, yeah. that's because I know there's interest. So that's different. And then I would say real rounds or most rounds come from those types of introductions. So you go out to your network and say, here's my deck. Don't never send your financials up front, just the deck. Never, never send any financials up front, not even in the deck, like just the idea. Because if that's what piques someone's interest, like then you've got them on the hook for like mm. the core reason of the business. Financials need to back up the plan they're not the plan, if that makes sense. So get like warm intros and get lots of referrals, have loads of meetings, be prepared for like 90% no's, 95%. That's just the way the game works. And you're looking for a market of one. You only need one investor to say yes, because realistically once one is in, maybe they'll fill the round or they yeah. will bring in two or three others basically. Um, and so, yeah, you need a process though. So there is a, like, there is a, bog standard process to raising money i was watching the podcast the other day with the guy who sells businesses it's very similar to that like build the book of people who might invest yeah. do the outreach yourself i've literally bring got them through the process a google spreadsheet of just quite literally 
it's it's split by rich people, mm-hmm. i.e. angels, mm-hmm. and funds, particularly in, in the UK and a lot of them in London. Yes, yeah. that's where you are. Yeah, and it's just like it's just like a hypothetical list. Like when I get to that point where I want to raise more more money, and you know. I can go to X, Y, Z, or, or maybe they'll come to me, hopefully. Mm, mm. But it's just... No, you want to go to them. Do you think? You definitely that, want to go to them. better way around? 100%, yeah. Because you have, like I said, most inbound that will come to you will have already got terms in their head, which probably aren't the best ones. Mm. They have sized you up against competitors or they've sized you up against, you know, deals they've done before. Yeah. Of course, this is like, I would say this is like, this is my typical view. There's always anomalies who come to you and they're like the best investor ever, but you haven't even sold to them. Like you haven't told them your story. They've just made an assumption based on what they've seen. They haven't come and heard your 10 year vision or five year vision. I haven't, you know, they haven't sat in a room or a Zoom call and got the tingles and gone, oh Mm. my God, this is unbelievable. Yeah. Have you, have you heard of this shit? Like, so the, the, the process has, my opinion, has to be driven by you. And you've got to bear in mind, if you're an angel who wants to be found or you're a fund that wants to be found, your business is investing. You make money from investing. So you want these opportunities. Yeah. And then the, I didn't know that at the start. Like When people gave me money, it was like quite an emotional, like, oh my God, I'm going to do this thing. Yeah. But you've got to realize, like, if someone's invested in you, they can afford to lose the money and it's part of their way of making money. Like, they're going to get another hit if you don't make it kind of thing. Yeah. I was speaking to... Jack, who founded Wayflyer, who mm. I'm very fortunate to have as an investor in my new thing. Mm. And he was just telling me, I, don't know, I wonder if you agree with this. He said, in layman's terms, the first bit of money is fucking hard. It's like pulling teeth, mm-hmm. even from your network, because mm. there's still an element of, you know, you still got to convince them, et cetera. Yeah, et cetera. Sure. And you've got to have the network, and if you don't, it's even harder. Exactly. And he said, the first formal round with funds or whatever, very hard. Very hard. And then he said it gets easier. For sure. Yeah. Is that, have you found that? And do you think that's because it's almost like social proof of the fundraising? Totally. Like if, if they X, Y, and Z is invested, all right, we'll invest. Yeah. And it's like jumping on the bandwagon it's and so momentum true. thing. Yeah, 100%. Like the first formal round, I, I, there are, there's some stats around this, but it's it's such a low percentage of your chances, even if you get a referral. So mm. yeah, I mean, I, I fully agree. When we got our first institution around Fuel Ventures, you should have someone from Fuel on this. I actually DM'd them. Did you? Yeah. And they replied, to be fair, they were one of the very few that replied and they said, we like it, but we've got, we have some... They've got quite a lot of e-commerce stuff. They said it would be a conflict of interest. they got a lot something. of e-commerce stuff, yeah. Because they post like memes on LinkedIn, which I thought was quite an interesting, hilarious. It's quite an interesting I'll, way of doing I'll, it. I'll, um, I'll intro you to someone there and you should try and get someone Someone on actually there. DM'd me because I put on my story, which yeah. I never do, yeah. asking for questions for the pod. And by yeah. the way, I'm not using any of them because I don't even know why I asked. But yeah. someone did say, I think they're a founder of something. And they said, what's it like working with Fuel Ventures? Because they obviously knew. Yeah, they're amazing. Yeah, they're amazing. They're just brilliant. They're like... I won't go into details on people, but they are all awesome and they are very, very raw. And with all relationships, I wouldn't say I've had ups and downs, but there are some challenges, obviously, that's just the way it goes. But like, yeah. they're just awesome. Yeah, they're cool. And and Guinness, who are other VC investors, were world-class as well. So like, you can get bad VC investors. There's no question. I've definitely heard some horror stories as well, mm. but the two I had were just amazing. But um, I can't remember the original question was like... No, they can't. Was there only ever two investors? There was, there was loads of angels, but that was the only two big ones, two big funds. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so Yeah, the, the question was, does it get easier? Is oh, it, does it get easier? Build, build oh, yeah, yeah. Is that the typical? First institutional round is like, 
so unlikely to happen. And I remember when Fuel said yes, I was like, this is life-changing. And it was, obviously it was life-changing, but like, it's just hard. They, they, have, they have to be so brutal, not because of any personal reasons about what they invest yeah. in. They have to make such like serious returns for their investors because they're risk capital. Like, yeah, the people that, if I put money into a VC fund, that is risk money of mine. If you've mm. got, if you put a hundred grand, a million quid, whatever, you can't have written it off basically on the hope that obviously one or two of these funds that they put money, sorry, businesses they put money into yeah. will come off. So not written off, but you know what I mean? So yeah. it is really hard to get them to give you your money because, mm. sorry, their money, because um, they've got to believe it's going to be a billion dollar business. And did they come in, was that the series A that was you saying was only last year? Fuel came into my what is called a seed plus round, so like late seed. So they did two million into that, and then they did two and a bit million, two million into into our Series A as well. And then yeah. Guinness did some, and then we had some angels and some private family offices and stuff like that. And in terms of valuations, then mm. like, I mean, I guess it's probably similar principles with ecom and like software, but <clears throat> where are they pulling? Like so. What came first, a valuation or a number of cash that you needed? And then how did how does negotiations go yeah, in that so, respect? Yeah, yeah. So typically you have a number, a amount of money you need, right? You need yeah. X to get to this stage, whether that is go from C to Series A or Series A to B or whatever it might be. So it typically starts with an amount of money. And to be honest, rule of thumb nowadays is after seed rounds is 20%, like 20 to 25%, you're going to give that away yeah. because that is the model that, again, VCs work in. So if you go in, you, you do get less, don't get me wrong. 15 is like, a, that would be a good deal. But like, let's just put the range at like low end 15. So you'll get an amazing deal, high end 25. Okay, it's pretty standard. Like that's what they're going to take of your business. So if you think of valuations- As a full round or per fund? As a full round. Yeah, yeah as a full round. So you think of valuations in two ways. One is optics. Like if you need 10 million to get to your next stage and you have the fortunate position to be able to raise 10 million for 20%, what's the numbers on that? Terrible. 50 like million. You're valuing yeah. your business at 50 million. There you go. Like there's no, that's just an optics thing. It's not valued at 50 what's million. What's optics mean? Optics is like the, the numbers just need to work because they know you need to raise more money yeah, later. Right. They can't come along and buy half your business for 50% because you'll never raise money again. Mm. So you've got to get like the, just the, like I said, the optics, the, it to look right basically. Yeah. And then otherwise you obviously get people to negotiate deals down in terms of valuation and stuff like that. And then it just beca- literally becomes like any other negotiation basically. I think it's valued at 15 for these reasons. We think it's valued at 12 for these reasons. All right, meet me in the middle at 13. No, yes, blah, blah, blah. You just get if they want to do a deal, they want to do a deal, and that's what it always yeah. comes down to. They've got to want to do the deal. And would a founder ever typically take money off the table in in, in rounds? Usually, Series B on onwards. That's like the rule of thumb. It can right. happen before, but like Series B, you're raising 10, 15, 20, 30 million, whatever the number is. Like you said, I'd like a million quid. Thank you. Just I've been de-risk. doing this for four years. Just de-risk, yeah, and nowadays that is not n- normal but like it, it's almost i would if i was in the vc shoes i'd encourage it because people always have the argument or oh, the founders got money therefore they're not going to turn up every day well no they're probably like married with kids and have a, like a life they need to build yeah. and they still want to do their business they just need to like pay some bills and they've been paying themselves next to nothing for five years so yeah i, I would encourage it if I, if I was running a fund 
Like I would say series B onwards, take an amount off the table, which gives you comfort, yeah. but still encourages you to crack on, obviously. And just on that side of it, I've got so many questions out for the back of this, but like salaries for founders, mm. when you get like private money involved, mm. it, it, like do they, because I mean, even for me, like I was saying to like my mate, so I'm going to pay myself something. I mean, of like, probably literally like three grand a month. Like I've got yeah. savings and stuff. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I feel like I have to, otherwise it's not indicative of right. what I would pay someone else. I mean, yeah. I'll probably pay someone else more, but yeah. I'll just literally cover my yeah, you, bare costs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, does that, is that a big part of negotiation or is it, is that like a rule of thumb? Typically, uh, Do they even have a say in that? Yeah, they have a say, VCs especially, some angels will, but like, of course they have a say, like just budget for it. Just say, I need 80 grand a year to live yeah. or I need 50 grand or whatever. Like you said, I need to cover my costs, have a bit more and then expense some stuff as well. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just create I mean, a package. To be fair, yeah, three grand a month does not cover my living costs. No, well, there you go. Living. Then exactly, yeah. It's so probably like, more like five. Yeah, but there you go. But just be transparent about it. It shouldn't be, again, this touchy subject. People yeah. need money to live. Like, And nowadays, living in London or any major city, I would argue realistically, like if you're if you've got like a standard living like you have you need a decent package at the end of the day obviously if people like want to start it and have a lower expectation of salary because perhaps they're starting like at 20 and their only job they've ever had is like 20 grand a year yeah perfect place to start 25 grand a year is going to get you set up kind of thing it's, yeah. it's all relative so but this whole concept of salaries being contentious obviously you're not going to pay yourself like 250 grand mm. a year on day one but you need to be paid a decent amount where you don't wake up every day and this whole ramen noodle culture, like, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. that is not right at the end of the day. Yes, you should be frugal and not take the piss, but, like, you need money. Like, this is, there's no point bullshitting. And put it in your budget and make it a bog-standard thing. Yeah. And that's the other good thing about having an FD. They'll go and say, well, I work for five other businesses. The benchmark salary is this. Yeah. So, therefore, chuck it on that kind of thing. You need money to live, for sure. Another big, well, just thing, is, like, do you think funds like broadly speaking to investors angels mm. and funds mm. are investing in the founder or the business more the founder by like a magnitude of 10,000 oh really oh for sure yeah yeah so most funds particularly let's just take funds if they're investing in a segment where it's SaaS e-com whatever healthcare etc like they want to invest in those spaces. So they've already decided they're going to allocate a percentage of their uh, investment to that industry. And therefore, then it's just finding the business. So mm. finding the business, okay, I like marketplaces, I like e-com, I like SaaS, et cetera, within healthcare. Cool, whittle it down even more. Okay, there are only 20 decent companies. There are only an amount of companies that are decent in these spaces that are worth investing in. Yeah. Okay, let's go and meet all of those. Okay, well, what's the anomaly that's actually going to get you to invest? It's not the business. It's not the space because you've already made all these conscious decisions that you're going to be in that. Mm. It is the individual who is going to drive the business. And I have spoken to, I don't know, I close to 200, maybe 300 plus angel investors in my life, 100 plus, 150 funds at least. They all say we back the person behind it, whoever it is, is the founder. That's what needs to work to get us to actually write the check because the rest is... I'm never going to say it's like pure tick box, but like I said, yeah. industry, yes. Space, yes. Fast growth, yes. Cool. We're going to write this check into this. Do we believe this person will get this business to this stage? Yes. 
release money like after all the legal stuff obviously yeah they've got to believe in you yeah they've got, people we all like we're talking about teams if you're going to build a hundred million dollar e-com business you're going to do it through people you're not going to do it through anything else yeah so they've got to believe you can go on that journey in your experience what i mean it's like such a corny question but like is there certain things that you've seen in other founders and yourself that mm. people resonate with what funds resonate with and like conviction or, yeah whether that's normally it's in yourself in your space and in what you're trying to do like the most of the people when I ask for feedback like why did you invest or have a chat with them like have a coffee with them mm. now they were like you believed so much in what you were going to do and it was very clear just being around you nothing was going to get in your way and you were open to learning to be fair that's probably the other thing like you were very very pro feedback and took that feedback on and made like adjustments to how you operate mm. those were the things that really went I, I was like within three minutes decided I would invest basically and then after because that you know it's like every if I was investing in a founder which I've invested in six or seven businesses now it, or a business is always the person that gets me across the line so yeah. I've seen it on the other side now like yeah, yeah that's what I mean so yeah. it is it's like you, you know individual characters are going to do whatever it takes to get something done and go on the journey which is such a critical phrase that's what's going to get you to part part with the cash basically yeah and with cause I, I actually have a friend um I went to uni with him. I think it was a year above originally. Mm. And now he works in a big fund. I won't say his name or the fund. Yeah. But, and I was kind of speaking to him because we had like a drink a few months ago <clears throat> and he's now starting his own econ brand, mm. which I've been helping him with a little bit. Mm. But, um, and he, he sees like the inside of all these deals and shit. I just thought it was fascinating. Yeah. yeah. But the people making the decisions in these funds, like, are they just... Durham graduates or are they like entrepreneurs do you know, do you know what I mean no, I I, what I've always mean. found it like in my limited exposure to that yeah it seems kind of ironic that potentially like I don't know a PPE graduate is making a decision <laughs> yeah. on an entrepreneur when they've never been in the trenches themselves yeah 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 or is that God. not always the case no 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 yeah there's mixed bag so you basically in some funds like you said there are lots of people that have not got a clue even remotely or have literally just graduated college or whatever yeah, yeah. trying to evaluate businesses and having these meetings I don't mean this offensively to anybody but like if you have a meeting with someone like that you just shouldn't have the meeting basically yeah. and it's not because you're being an arsehole it's just like they are just researching in reality like they are not there looking for investments they are trying to meet founders trying to get experience trying to find out for a portfolio business who else is around yeah they are just researching and that's exactly what they're there to do yeah everyone so, starts somewhere don't they exactly yeah precisely so you do get that if you get like quite far into a process and someone junior is a blocker then you never built up conviction with the person who was a decision maker anyway so never worry about like the junior or the associate that might sound like a bit like trying to block the deal you haven't got the main person regardless because if the main person like the principal typically in the fund wants to invest it's gonna happen it's just a matter yeah. of time and it's just a matter of them being your advocate so there's like complicated things but like they create these structures because obviously they can only do so many deals a year so they need loads of no's like you need more no's than yeses the main thing is that whether you're there are two again almost like two types of funds one is founder 
started. So you've run one, two, three SaaS businesses, software businesses, e-com, successful businesses, and then used your capital to start a fund. Like a family so office. You're an entrepreneur. No, even if you're like Andrea and Horowitz, they're two founders. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not like just, they're not yeah. just investors, so to speak. Yeah. They know and been, have been on the journeys, but they've also bought in a load of, like you said, MBAs, grads to build out their functions. Like they, they, but they, you know, if you get in a meeting with them, they're going to invest based on gut feel because they know you can go on the journey. If you come across someone who's a principal, as in the senior in a fund, but they've never built a business, it is harder to have the conversation honestly with them because you know that they're not stupid. They're obviously very intelligent, yeah. but they will look at the spreadsheet and that they'll be guided by the spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, like I said, like that's why you need both got documents. The spreadsheet gets you ticks in the box. The the pitch gets you across the line, and so. There's no right, there's no like right answer to this or like no like concrete thing. But I prefer if I was working with a fund for them to be like from an entrepreneurial background or have lots of entrepreneurs and residents to keep the checks and balances with basically yeah. people who are really good at spreadsheets and data. And these funds themselves, this is going to be a two hour podcast. I've got so many fucking questions. <laughs> I find it's it so good. interesting. Yeah, it's all good. These funds, I mean, you know. There's one down the road called True Global. You probably know them. No, I don't know. They guys. No, no, there's so many. They're outside a gym I used to go to. That's why I mentioned them. There's so many funds. That's the other thing. There's so many. What are the mechanics? If I wanted to start a fund tomorrow, hypothetically, which I wouldn't do because I'm not fucking, I'm not made it yet. But like, are they just literally taking money off private investors, institutional, larger funds? Mm. Pulling together, say, 100 million quid yeah. and then deploying it for, what, 30% annual returns, something like that? There's, there's, that's basically yeah. how it works, I know. Mm, no, like, yes, in principle, but no. So I'm not, like, by far a pro in this, but I can talk about two funds that I know how they work. So yeah. EIS funds. EIS is, uh, in the UK only, if you're an investor, as in, like me, you, whoever, putting 100 grand into an EIS fund or an EIS business, you get 30% back in tax yeah. relief. So literally get 30 grand back. Thank you very much. And if the business goes bust, you get another 25-ish percent back. So your downside is next to nothing. Put 100 grand in, you get 30 grand back. Goes bust, you get another 25% back. Again, my mental arithmetic's terrible. Less than half is like, you know, gone yeah. basically. So an EIS fund, there's other rules like, ideally the fund would hold the shares for three years because then once the business sells, whenever it is after that, the investors get the returns capital gains tax-free. Yeah. So there's no tax to pay on the income. So if you right. make a million quid off an EIS investment and it's after three years, you pay no tax on the million quid, which is amazing for investors. Mm. So an EIS fund will have cycles. So it has to invest before the end of the tax year and then it has to raise money again. They will only invest in EIS accredited businesses, which I think there's loads of rules around that. Five years, like not trading for five, I don't know, I can't remember, but there's like rules around EIS investments. Yeah. They have to deploy the fund within the time period. So if you raise 10 million, 20 million, 30 million quid, you have to deploy the EIS money within the time period. And there's like a whole load of rules and strategies around how to make that money work within that tax scheme, basically. And so they will have, you know, criteria around EIS eligibility that they want to invest in. A VCT, Venture Capital Trust Fund, I don't know all the mechanics of it, but basically has its own set of rules around that mechanic as well. Yeah. Different tax relief, different time periods, typically bigger amounts of money. But like, again, they want to hold for a period because their investors get tax relief and stuff like that. And then you get two types of funds. You get evergreen, which means they're always raising. So like you said, it's not a hundred million fund. It's just always yeah. being replenished. 
And then you get ones that are actual start and end dates like fund one, 50 million, fund two, 60 million, fund three. And they just have to deploy that fund. And when that fund's gone, it's gone kind of thing. So those are the ones I know, but like all the money in the UK, as far as I'm aware, is basically individuals. In the States, this is why they've always got bigger rounds because like um, universities can invest in, in um, and universities surprisingly, believe it or not, like have ridiculous amounts of money. Yeah, I, think, I bet I think, they do. I think, Harvard, I think Harvard is the biggest investor in the world. Like oh, They charge dance 100 grand a year. Well, exactly. Yeah. So Jesus. like... There's, there's more sources of funds in the States for bigger checks, basically. Yeah. And in the UK, it's really, I think it's quite regulated. So pension funds in the States can invest through into startup funds, whereas in the UK, you can't. Yeah. So once that starts to get deregulated, that's when you'll start seeing lots of billion dollar funds in the UK come up when pension funds can suddenly put all this cash that just sits in like 10, you know, 2% a year growth stuff into yeah, startups, yeah. basically. So that's how, that's like one way of thinking about it, how it works kind of thing. Yeah, I actually had lunch with a guy called Andrew Sutcliffe. I think he founded a fund called Red Rice. Mm. I don't know if you had him. I feel like I know his it's like name. like a year and a half ago. Yeah. don't know how this came about. Mm. But one brand I remember they, they invested in was Castor Clothing. You heard of them? Mm-hmm. And I, think they, I don't know loads I about think them. I think they went them. in when they were doing, I think you said like 3 million revenue or something. And yeah. now they're like nine figure. Because yeah, I saw them yeah. on like Premier League. Yeah, advertising. Whatever, like yeah, billboards yeah. in the stadiums and shit. Yeah. I was like, fucking hell. It's mad because obviously, yeah, that'd be a huge return for them. It'd be but massive, like, yeah. The one thing about funds and like, I feel like now you read about just like ridiculous multiples, like like checkout.com, like I mentioned earlier, I was reading yeah. about that yesterday, 40 yeah. billion valuation. I don't even know what the revenue is, but yeah, it's probably less yeah. than a billion. Yeah. Like how much of it is just like you want to sell to like, these funds are just putting bigger numbers and like the value of the fund and the businesses they're investing in mm. is based on the idea or the presumption that a bigger fund mm-hmm. will pay more for it and yeah, ultimately yeah. therefore it's worth that. Yeah, yeah. And how much is like the businesses they're investing in are actually ultimately like either A, going to be profitable in the future or, yeah. or, or some other thing. Do you know what I mean? Have the entry- you read about some of these businesses and just think, it seems like inflated. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I would Compared say to like your typical two to three X EBITDA yeah, for acquisition. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I'd rather be the guy that sold for ten X revenue. But yeah, of course. course. Of course you would. Yeah, exactly. Basically, they like this is my view on this. There's no again. There's always no right and wrong. Like there is an oversupply of money in the world at the moment by yeah. God knows what the like the auditor of magnitude is for the mm. last I don't know ten years. Let's say twenty years, and so that has skewed everything just massively skewed everything to the point where like you said putting a value on a business i i can't remember i don't know tesla's numbers i don't even know if they're profitable they're recently profitable is an a trillion dollar or was, yeah, was yeah. a trillion dollar business yeah but it's made a profit i think one quarter in its existence maybe yeah but it's an amazing business and shows no current sign of lack of growth mm. and if you think about it it's electric cars it's the pioneer probably has another 100 years plus of quite aggressive growth ahead yeah, of it. Yeah, sure. Okay, the market has clearly priced that shit in. If you can value a company like that, again, whatever the numbers are, multi-billions, if not trillions, you're valuing it on the future potential of that growth. You're not yeah. valuing on what it does today. And it's all, it is made up. I mean, we can go very philosophical. Money is made up. Yeah, I always think it's about <laughs> market cap because, yeah, yeah like... Do, 
two well one question then another point like do you think then the most important thing in a startup is growth rather than necessarily performance i.e profitability it, 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 it changes at stages yeah so growth in the very early stages mission critical like revenue growth is so important as long as your market's big enough to support it yeah and there's so many dynamics to this i, I could talk about this stuff forever but if you have a very very big market like and it's constantly growing your business therefore should be able to get very very big and be very confident that it can continue to grow because more and more people are entering the market to buy the product for example like social media marketing that's going to continue to grow for a long time there's yeah. always going to be new people doing it therefore there's growth in it um so i would always focus again in, in a tech startup and, and most other companies to be fair in the early stages revenue growth revenue growth revenue growth yeah as you get more mature you then get into what's known as unit economics as in like reducing the cost to acquire a customer making them more profitable like making sure that those metrics add up that you can scale in a cost-effective manner basically you might not still be making money but not burning at all costs you've heard that phrase i'm guessing yeah, yeah. Like burn at all costs um it goes back into the the metric around that like you talk about market cap what's same as any deal what's it worth to that individual or that company so let's go strategic buyer like i said that buys a business that's say doing a million in revenue but they buy it for 10 20 30 40 whatever the number is yeah but they know because they've got 50,000 customers who would buy this product, they can make the same money back every year. It's worth them. And they've got cash. Like they're sitting on dead cash. They've got to spend that cash on something. Yeah. Why not spend the 10 million quid, buy the little startup, everybody's happy. They make the extra money every year for the next 100 years. It's just yeah, basic maths when you think about it. So that's where it all comes into play. And it's noise like do the numbers figure out what works for the business figure out what's going to work and that's let that govern all the decisions if that makes sense i would ignore like the market caps the 10x multipliers or the 50x multipliers like every deal is so different um there's always a region and a logic to do a deal at the end of the day like if, if you're investing in a business where it's like a billion dollar valuation but they're only doing 20 million in revenue or whatever it might be you're pricing in the fact that it's going to grow so much to the point where someone like you said is going to buy buy the next set of shares at the next price so there is no easy answer to it it is just like yeah a very confusing big I just, yeah i just organism. definitely rather be on the side of the because that's actually one interesting anecdote at the back of this again i won't say her name but this um girl i was introduced to recently she's like i think she's younger than me actually maybe my age incredibly intelligent we're potentially going to work together in some capacity mm. on my new thing but she had a drinks brand which had done i'm not joking 20 grand in revenue she got acquired seven figures cash last year really and i just i was like a jealous yeah but b yeah. fucking hell like and it was yeah the definition of a strategic buyer Damn. based on what she told me exactly well, it would be yeah 100 percent. and yeah it, it just yeah I'd, I'd rather be like figuring out how to position a business and a startup from the start to potentially mm. be one of those that gets that. A, yeah rather than just what i nearly did with my previous jewelry business which is sell it for 3x trailing ebitda and then they try and fucking chop off everything and then yeah you're actually yeah. selling it for like what the stock is worth yeah almost. for sure yeah Do you know what i mean well the other thing is around that take that business for example is that someone else would have paid a different price for it yeah. You were talking to someone who values it. It was on like way. Flipper originally, yeah, exactly. Like yeah, bedroom shit. Someone would have paid 
a, a strategic price for that brand yeah but you just hadn't come across them kind of thing that's the, i definitely believe that like i've got another business i'm involved in now and that is almost happening and i've been saying slow down wait I know this sounds enticing, but like this could really undervalue what you could create and just wait another year kind of thing. So yeah, it's a difficult one, but you know, it's just like timing in life and depends on what's going on. But but strategic narrative, and that sounds as a real buzzword, but like building a strategic narrative for your company, both to the investment market, to potential buyers, to the industry is so important. You're owning a space, you're building a space. And the other thing is, is like truly understanding the dynamics you're operating in. And I'm like, it's, I always sound so geeky when I say things like this, but really studying like the big movements in your space so you can frame your business in the context of that space yeah. and where it can go. And believing in it is like where value truly lies. There's another like really great like thing. I can't remember what this is and whether it's the UK stock market or one of the American ones. Something like 90% of the value on whichever stock market is, is what's called in um, intangible value. It's got nothing to do with the numbers. Nike is, um, yeah. Tesla is a perfect example. Like perception is reality sort of thing. Yeah, it's got nothing to do with the numbers. Yeah. And in, intangible value is driving a lot more value, like even in, in numbers, ironically, than the actual physical numbers on a piece of paper or the cash that they have. Yeah, that's such an interesting way of putting it. It's a great concept. And that's why brand is critical like yeah. in, especially in an econ business like look at i don't know nike is not a good example i don't know what a good one is but like warby parker brand value yeah. whatever value is put on that intangible asset is why people go and buy the bloody glasses at the end of the day like why do we choose brands over a non-branded product and why do we pay yeah. literally sometimes like a hundred times the price for a watch with a Rolex logo on it than something that is literally exactly yeah. the same with a different name because we like the brand so it's You've got a nice submarine yeah on that's the, cool the but, like, strap. <laughs> but like it's, that's what it comes down to it's so complicated but it go, then it taps into like human psychology and stuff like that so yeah. it's weird yeah. yeah yeah right I want to come on to I feel like we could speak about loads of different things for mm. like fucking five hours, like most pods, but particularly this one, because I find it just such an interesting space. Yeah, cool. So obviously sold the business to Adobe. Yeah. What, two months ago recently? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, recently, I know yeah. you can't speak about a lot of the details, but I feel like for a lot of people watching, and myself included, mm. it kind of, it's like, I don't know, entrepreneurially, it's like winning the Champions League in <laughs> yeah. a way. Yeah, that's a good, good analogy. Metaphor. Yeah, like, for sure. Just yeah. getting a big exit for a business that I guess you A, enjoyed building and then yeah. B, ultimately get to make a lot of money from. Yeah. And then like, it kind of makes the shit worth it, for I would sure. imagine. Oh yeah, it's like the most amazing thing, most confusing thing, most intense thing I've ever been through, which like probably sounds probably similar to doing the Champions League in football, but like, yeah. It's very surreal and um, it's not what you think it's going to be like. And all the moments, like all the good bits and the tough bits, they're all, they push you to your like emotional and I would even say like weirdly physical edge as a person. Um, but like that's what a tough M&A process is going to be at the end of the day. Like like you say, if you get the great fruits of like the labor and the work you've done, it ain't going to come easy. Yeah. Even if you've put in years of hard work, like I worked very, very hard and still do, but I like worked extremely hard in like the first five years of the company and before, but like that period, I would say it's like, it's like the irony comes back to like the software bit, but like the first, sorry, the last 5% is as hard as the 
first 95 that's exactly how i would describe the journey so it is incredible i is i feel very lucky i feel like i feel you never feel like go back to the imposter syndrome thing you deserve it but then when you reflect you get time to say no no i did put a lot of hours in here like i had a lot of turmoil to go through this i feel like i deserve it and also so many like of our team have benefited and um are obviously our investors you just never get there without investors like in our journey it's just great like i never say it's not conclusion it's like a new chapter for the company basically so yeah yeah mad absolutely mad so how did that come about then like obviously you five years in the business yeah you're at a decent scale i think yeah, your linkedin growing. says yeah, 70 yeah. employees yeah 60 ish employees give or take yeah, yeah. we were no good scale growing fast we were positioned really well like brand and product we were we were known like yeah. I think one of the things that we did really well and still do is we positioned ourselves like against the Hootsuites quite early in blogs and stuff like that. So we were being referenced against massive players in our space when we were very small. So, you know, we were perceived to be the right business, like at the right time and growing for customers and stuff. And we, to be honest, the, the key thing is we've got a good product and a good company. Like if you looked under the hood of the company, it's good business. It's a really yeah. good business. Um, uh, and so we made the right signals basically for them to reach out. And uh, it was a very like discreet and I don't know, a reach out that basically didn't give away anything about what they wanted to do. It was much mm. more of a discussion. Like I said, I can't go into loads of it, but like, we had loads of just really amazing conversations, which turned out to be obviously where we landed. But yeah, yeah, it was very organic. Basically, it wasn't like like a contrived conversation. It was very, very organic. Yeah, you said beforehand it was like six months from first contact to completion or whatever. Mm. But before that, up to that six month point, then before that happened, mm. where was your head at in terms of as a founder? Like, obviously, the business is going well. Mm. I imagine you'd maybe have thought about an exit. Had, oh, yeah. Was that on? But like, did you think that was going to be? Nowhere near time. Now, had you, had you even put a timeline on it? No, or? no, no. So I, I actively would say as a founder, think about exit probably more than average at the start and in the middle of the journey. Like it was in my mind. The, the business was always built to, to sell. Yeah. Could have been, no, never could have been IPO in my opinion. I never wanted to go down that route. It was always built to sell at some point. <laughs> Was it on my mind at the time? Absolutely not. We literally just raised like a round of funding, a series A. Yeah. So we're like, definitely not. Uh, we just raised that to grow. I'd immediately started um, like planning after that our series B. So I was literally in fundraising mode like a week after doing our series A. Mm. Um, and the team was gearing up for sales, like next steps, like product development, etc. So it was really in like the phase of like growing the company. Um, and it just... I was very focused on building the business, like very obviously planning for fundraise, but building the next phase of like the content cal world, setting our vision for like what we wanted to develop, what we wanted to do. Exit was on my radar, but one of the best bits of advice I got, like again, a few years ago was something, I can't remember the words, but like if you build a great business, that's what people will ultimately buy you for. And that is the reason you will successfully exit if you don't focus on building a great business every single day and think a lot about your exit, well, what are they buying? Like there's no underlying yeah. like quality under the hood. Basically you can't get distracted mm. by the thought of someone coming along one day and buying it. So I really like laser focused on building a great business. Yeah. If I'm honest, going back to all the stuff I've been saying throughout most of this podcast team, team is just team and product 
is so critical because nothing happens without a great team and no one buys anything without a great product yeah. basically so, so it's like really simple but like that's what it comes down to so wasn't on the radar definitely came out of the blue and was just an awesome like closing of that chapter and then on to the next one with them obviously yeah yeah so you, you closed this, the series A previously mm. I think I read that was like six million six dollars six and six point two million dollars yeah and then you mentioned like that was already working on the series B like how how quick typically then is very it, quick yeah. is it like a six month pro- you said a six month process earlier I think to raise money yeah so normally what would happen is you'd raise enough money for say a year to 18 months yeah but nowadays because growth can be done so much quicker and because of Zoom to be honest like you can meet investors much faster mm. um, and people just get through the investment process faster rounds were like decreasing in time from 18 months to like literally six months yeah. and in some instances like two months it was just yeah. ridiculous much more in america but like that meant really that you you would run the business you'd close your round you'd put the plan in well, you'd have the plan but like you tweak the plan slightly you'd get sign off for like the plan from the, the new vcs and etc you'd start hitting the ground running you'd start hiring hiring straight away it always takes time so you know it's going to take you three months yeah. to like get the next set of hires in to do the growth and then literally after 30 to 45 days, you'd be back out. I was rewriting a Series B deck, planning the next strategic narrative. Re- Is meeting. that because, like, broadly speaking, you knew you'd run out of money because you're pushing the growth? Or was it kind of like we said earlier, like just, just a strategic yeah, it's a plan plan it's because a you wanted to like inflate, raise the value of the business yeah, you want for to go a again. potential future exit? Yeah, exactly. Like... You, what's the point of waiting 18 months if you can do the same thing in six yeah that's basically what it comes down to and that takes a mindset adjustment massively like 18 months right you want to hire 40 people well can't we hire 40 people in two months just need to hire two recruiters to yeah. hire 40 people yeah. it's going to cost me a bit more money and therefore I'm going to run out of money a little bit faster but like if I want 40 people I just need to do it faster I just don't need to wait 18 months that's hard but like if you want to generate 10,000 new leads back to your like Facebook maths Yes, yeah. you can spread that over 18 months or I spend it in four months and get 10,000 leads. Like, what's the point of waiting if you've got the scale? So it's all about condensing the growth plan. But like I said, going back to the business modeling, mm. your burn is going to increase massively. So you've got to be comfortable with the fact that you're going to burn theoretically what might be seen as 18 months cash in six to nine months. And then you've got to learn how to explain that, obviously, and stuff. Yeah. So, and is the business growing at the same speed that the like payroll is growing or, no. is, or is it not <laughs> right, this must, no this yeah yeah no not to no not at all like and is it expected to catch up though no or is it well like, it depends on the business but like percentage what's wise, the objective of hiring them up is revenue like, growth month on month yeah 10 20 percent revenue growth month on month cash burn there's a ratio you should work to i can't remember what it is off the top of my head but like yes you should have a controlled cash burn but like revenue growth, revenue growth, revenue growth. And then it's just investor interest. If you have the right investor three to six months after you've done your Series A who wants to invest and back to our like pricing in, is willing to price in a slightly inflated valuation but wants a slice of the business, yeah, they'll just pay the price. They'll just pay, for, they'll, they'll say, I'll give you, you've just raised six, I'm going to give you 12. I don't care if the value's tripled in six months. You've, you've got it working let's carry on basically if you mm. on the flip side like if you don't hit the metrics and we weren't perfect but like no businesses but like if growth is not as fast as you'd expect 
then you just slow down. You just say, right, slow down hiring, slow down spending, that reduces cash burn, that buys you an extra three, four, five months, however yeah. long. You just continually manipulate that. So are the investors giving you XYZ KPIs to hit in Other way six, around. 12 months time? Other way you, around. You, giving you them? are giving them KPIs as to what you can hit with the resources and the money you've got. They are they could, realistic or are they inflated for... You give a high, medium and low. Yeah. It's like, this is the thing. Dragon's Den for like my junior years of my life, which I love mm. the concept of, makes investors look like a very certain style of people. Yeah, it does. You, well, they've got you, the new one now. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and Stephen Bartlett, to be fair, so I've met him once and like, did a Zoom thing and stuff. Good guy. Good for him to be on there because he need a new generation. But like... Yeah. They are not there to run your business and tell you what your objectives are. You are there as a management team to tell them what you think you're going to achieve. You're going mm. to give them a range. Investors are there to give you money to achieve those goals. You're the one driving the business, not them. So like, yes, yeah. they can push you and they should push you. They should say, you're not ambitious enough. Like push your like high number up a bit further. Cool. Because you want to be ambitious at the end of the day. But like you're there to run the company. So you're going, this is what I'm going to achieve within this year. This is why you've given me the money. This is what I'm going to invest. If you want me to achieve 10 times more than that, then I'm going to need another 3 million quid or whatever. Yeah. And if you won't give me that, then I have to go back out to market and raise. There's loads of dynamic conversations like that. But like the CEO runs the business. The investors don't run the Did business. Did you hire a CEO, by the way? Or no, I was CEO. CEO. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, but like that's the most important thing to remember throughout this. Like you're in the driving seat everyone else is here to support and facilitate your mission and that's the way it should be they they might challenge you and they they should challenge you but like you're driving you're you're beating the drum basically did you found slightly different angle question mm. did you did you find it got more stressful as a result of you know there's more spending power more funding coming in mm. more ultimately em employees to pay etc mm. mm. or less stressful because you know, you've gone from ultimately being a very scrappy startup where you don't know if you can fucking yeah. eat next month yeah, yeah, to having, yeah. you know, millions available to spend. Like, yeah. which was more stressful and why? Or are Di they different in other ways? Different, yeah, different. I would say, if I'm honest, so they're definitely different, but I would say the seed stages are more stressful. But it mainly comes down to experience that you don't really know what you're doing. So, like, again, going back to, like, basics, put controls in. So create a budget stick to the budget tweak the budget if you need to spend more like they all sound like things that are controllable whereas if you're seed stage and you've just raised like a bit like you're, like you're saying 250 grand and you're not really sure how you're going to spend it so you might spend a bit here and a bit there and tweak yeah. it and dig it yeah i know because i know what you're, you're doing it because that's what you're doing like create a budget and plan it and then if you need to spend another 20 percent more at least you've got something to judge it and challenge it against a little bit rather than being like I'll just double the budget because I know I'm going to get the next set of leads. You're, yeah, that might be the right thing to do, but you're reducing cash burn, so or increasing cash burn and reducing cash balance. So creating controls around things, and sometimes these are arbitrary controls. Like you can do whatever you want at the end of the day, but like something to benchmark yourself against. That's what's important. So when you get into linking that back to your question, to the later stages with the bigger amounts, you have to put controls in. Yeah, like if a VC invests in your business, they will say you can't spend over twenty five grand uh, or whatever number it is without approval. Yeah, so you go, I need to spend twenty five grand a month on Facebook ads. So they'll say, yeah, cool, spend twenty five grand on Facebook ads. You then say, I now need to spend fifty. They'll go, not spending fifty because I can see if I put that into the cash flow, you run out of money four months way earlier than planned. Yeah, 
And this is what you, your FD is doing. Yeah. So they yeah. go, why don't you spend 30 instead of 50? You won't get the same growth, but you're going to have the right amount of money. Yeah. And then we can also say, you know, we'll fund the next stage of your growth. And we need those three months to raise the money to do that as well. So you're just collaborating, basically. It's way more collaborative than people think. It's not yeah. about instruction. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. And then on the, obviously, deal side with Adobe then, like, obviously, you start speaking to him, whatever. Mm. I mean, these are literally like layman's terms questions. Yeah, it's yeah. probably what most people would ask. But like, is it, does he obviously gets to a point where they express interest in acquiring you and you think, oh, potentially going to get loads of money, <laughs> you know, whatever. Mm. Do they literally just, this is what we're offering? Or do they, like, how does that work? Like in terms of negotiation, like whose court is the ball in at this point? Oh, like- Theirs again, or yours? It's a hard one. Let's remove us and just put it into normal deal context. Yeah, it's very, very, it's very hard to predict who truly controls the conversation and the value and the deal, and neither party knows. I would say so. Again, let's forget a content call Adobe, but like let's just think about a deal. If somebody wants something and you've got it, and you kind of want something, but you know it's not really necessarily right now, and you're not really yeah. sure, but you've got the good thing, so to speak. Who holds the cards is so hard to predict. You mm. never know where you stand. And I would say, again, I can't remember which. I was watching one of your podcasts. There was a guy who does a lot of M and A. Yeah, um, Nick. Deal dynamics is the phrase, mm. and it is the most complicated thing again I have ever been part of. Like, who's like you said in control? Firstly, but secondly, every meeting you have and every new person is introduced suddenly introduces like this new complexity that you've got no idea. Are they, are they more important than the person I was speaking to? Are they less important? I've suddenly been introduced to this new FD. Do they now get to cancel the deal if they you know they feel like it? Yeah. Deal dynamics is what really drives it. And so there's another guy you should have on here actually called Wes who like advised us on our deal, um, who's a legend. Yeah, definitely. You should definitely get him on. But like he talked a lot about deal dynamics to me and coached me all the way through the deal. Like, you're never going to know the answer to your question, basically. Yeah. So you'll know in hindsight, <laughs> but like in was the was that stressful or exciting? Both, but like horrendously stressful. Yeah, amazingly exciting, but like horrifically stressful at the same time. Is the is the toughest thing I've ever done and been through in my life. But at what point though did you decide, like mentally and emotionally, or whatever to? to all right this is what i want to do we are going to sell the business because obviously previously you said it wasn't massively on the radar yeah like it was there a tipping point and then when that happened how does that change how you're running the business do you suddenly yeah, feel a, less committed or no, more committed no, because you want to get it over the line yeah well all of that like i would say i've never i'm a my personality is the commitment is always high like even now when i still run content cow like i own the thing so yeah and my commitment to Adobe and the promises that we've made is almost 10 times higher. Like similar to when you've taken money, I've promised things to us as a combined organization for yeah. our people, our business, we're gonna get it done. So that's all good. But like, uh, you know it's right when you've just, it. Oh, so cringe, but like it will, you'll just know like, mm. and it will be backing towards like people thing it's because the people you've met in the acquiring company you feel very, very in tune with. And again, company culture, we haven't actually talked about that at all. It's probably a good thing. That's a, a million podcast. things we could There's a podcast in itself. Yeah, but like, a lot, you feel, if you feel alignment on that front quite naturally, yeah. you know you're going to land in a good place. So 
obviously the money box has to get ticked and that's not just for you that's for like all the vcs and like the investment criteria. so you have to get to a price everybody wants to yeah. agree to but really the 20 other tick boxes culture alignment people plans market blah 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 they're the ones that really matter and the weighting has to go really heavily towards if those are really speaking to you you can mentally say like this is just the right thing to do and that's where i got to i was very not quickly but like over time really certain that if i'm honest like and i said this straight to them even in like pretty much the first meeting mm. if content cow goes to adobe and that's where its new home is there is no better like i said ending to that chapter and starting a new chapter in the combined world of us because yeah. adobe is a huge organization yeah with, i mean who doesn't have something of adobe's like use it every day there yeah. we go yeah exactly so what a great place to end up mm. like so for me it was like I said, just a, a, a tough and amazing and challenging experience, but like amazingly fulfilling. And I'm almost like, can't wait to get started. Well, I've already started, but like carry yeah. on what we're doing with them. So exciting, mate. Yeah, it's buzzing. So. so so how does that work beyond the deal as a founder then? I mean, we mentioned it before, but like, are you locked in for X amount of years to produce X or what? Uh, and, and is that typical? Oh, there's normally always an earn out like, or some sort of deal like that. That's just bog standard again. Yeah. Forget our deal for a minute, but like, there's always there's always something like that in place. And I don't think people should do deals unless they're either want to get out on the day and yeah. just part ways or you want to be there and be part of the combined mission. I don't like, I'm very like an open, honest person with everybody. Like I wouldn't have done it and said I wanted to stay unless I wanted to stay. So I'm very happy like, put my time in and absolutely get this done um, and like you know fulfill what they want to fulfill as well um, and then it is like having a job <laughs> funnily enough like, yeah. I've, like and I've only been doing it for a little bit but like it's like it's very similar you think of your new owners as your new VCs you manage it in the same way you might have different priorities now etc etc you just you just adapt yeah and that again we haven't touched on that that's a whole podcast in itself but like yeah, adapting change embracing that i like that so i'm good at that in my head yeah you just have to go with it like i don't put up barriers to what they want to do you're there to facilitate their plans mm. just get on with it kind of thing so did you get other offers we didn't require? engineer any others no no we could have but like Nah, we were like very content with the conversations we had basically, yeah. Yeah. We had other offers on the journey. Right. And we had other offers we ever considered in them? the process. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But not- well, It was going too stressful. Yeah, not to that level, yeah. Nowhere near. And we had offer, we didn't have other offers on the journey. We had a couple of approaches basically, yeah. Yeah. And then, like when, I mean, I kind of touched on it in, with, in the episode with Nick about M&A broadly. Mm. And obviously we can't go into the details of your deal, but- I mean, like, how does... I'm just asking questions that I want to know because I want to be there yeah. in a few years' time. Yeah. Like, you obviously hear different anecdotes about how you realise that money doesn't matter when yeah. you sell a business, whatever. Yeah. But, like, how is how was that? Mm. Like, um, well, just for you, how was that for you? Like, you literally build a business for years and ultimately you end up very wealthy as a result of building something cool yeah which like I said I think is the ultimate fucking goal for any yeah, entrepreneur yeah sure yeah like does that change the way you view the world do you like fucking it's, philosophical question yeah no but. for sure I think it can I think it really depends on the person so mm. I think for some people it can very quickly go to your head 
I think for some people it can allow you to do some stuff you've wanted to do and you try not to let it affect you. And look, for some people it can literally ruin their lives. Like you hear about this with the lottery and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. I think the thing for me is like, again, person, right? I'm a planner. I had a financial advisory company already in place ready to do this as soon as it happened. So I wasn't like, okay, I'm going to treat myself. I'm going to buy some stuff. Like I want to buy a Tesla and stuff like that, which I haven't yeah, even bought yeah. yet, but like I want to buy some bits. Yeah, cool. Move flat, et cetera, et cetera. But the rest of it is then, all right, well, again, my personality is not to take this amount and then that's it. I'm like, okay, that is massive achievement. Pat on the back, plan for that, buy some cool stuff. And then how do I 10x? How do I 100x? Yeah. You're not going to do that overnight. You're not going to do that like by probably not necessarily doing like another company. You're not going to do it by investing in passive stuff at the end of the day. Like you need to take some risks. So that's how I've tried to think about it. Like my philosophy again around that stuff is professional like goals and things you want to achieve, personal um, toys and adventure, have some stuff you want to fuck around with and then give back like charity helping causes out that you believe in again all a bit like you said philosophical and cringe but you've got to give back to the world in some way shape or form um so lay the groundwork for yourself to control what that could look like and just basically make sure that you you feel comfortable with whatever your like next phase of life is but one thing i will say is like i'm a very not ashamed to say this money matters in life massively like that you don't need to have aspirations to be a multi-gazillionaire whatever money means to you it is important because it funds what we do how we live what we eat what we drink the social stuff that we can do with our friends holidays etc so i've never been ashamed to be someone who wanted to make money mm. um and i don't think that everybody should absolutely like i said sit there and think i've got to be a millionaire or whatever but like yeah money's important you know so, what like one thing i will say just, sorry to cut you off is no. i had a profoundly new respect for money mm. When I went for feeling like, you know, obviously it wasn't on the same level as you by any means, but I was being, like, in hindsight, you know, I had a, had a fucking Ferrari when I was 24. Four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Financed heavily. You were, you were 22, though, but, to be fair. But yeah, like, yeah. like, I have a newfound respect for money, which I actually think makes me a much more dangerous entrepreneur now because, I don't know, like, I just, I've had a t- little taste of it. Mm. And then I've experienced what it's like when you can lose a lot of it very sure. quickly. Yeah. So, yeah, and I, I didn't have that before. I mean, I came from normal middle class family, whatever. I don't come from money. Same. But I also, yeah, yeah. I didn't, I wasn't, didn't come from fucking starvation. No, no, yeah, no, so probably like it. most people, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I definitely have a much bigger respect for money now. Well, um, when when it happens to you, even again, on a sm- even with smaller amounts, so different. You'll be like, so different. Yeah. yeah. Like trust me. So think of it as like an empower like. You've been given an incredibly lucky and empowered position in life. What can you do, like you said, almost to like respect it and use it for something which is great and have some fun Like at the end of the day? So, yeah. Yeah, it's weird though. I mean, look, it's, it's also just awesome, right? Financial freedom is very exciting and cool place to be in life. So yeah, don't want, you don't want to get too serious. Of course, you've got to go and buy some cool stuff at the end of the day, like I said. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, but like, yeah, yeah, it's a weird one. Still haven't got my head around it. I'm still doing it mentally. Did you, like, this is like one of those weird fucking stereotype questions, but do you find people that weren't your friends before? Uh, like, is it any of that at all? A little bit. Not maybe that's lot. not the right way to phrase no, it. No, no, what you mean. People yeah. that maybe didn't give a fuck about the business that suddenly become oh, your I'm best con- mate. I used to yeah. be contact, I was yeah. biggest customer, all this X, Y, Z. 
Not not too bad. I I've been pleasantly surprised. We've had I've had one or two, but like not as much as you'd think. But at the same time, I haven't. You look at my Instagram and stuff like that. I don't shout about stuff yeah. that much. So like, people probably don't know where my world has landed up. If that makes sense, and I'm cool with that. There's nothing. I've got nothing to like mm. show or hide, so to speak. But like, got the classic style of like black zip hoodie. Yeah, from Marks and Spencer's. Yeah, yeah, like sixteen no, quid. No, yeah. Gucci, <laughs> no exactly. So yeah, I don't know. Like not yet. But I'm sure it will happen. And also, the other thing to bear in mind is like I'm in my thirties. I've hopefully got like a long life and career ahead, right? So like, yes, I'd like to be able to continually build your lifestyle adjusts, etc. And I want to be able to help people achieve what they want to achieve. But like, I'm not like someone who just like give something for nothing. And I've never had that similar to you. I'm not from like super mega wealthy family background. Yeah, I've worked very, very hard. I've had some lucky breaks, but I like worked really hard for what I've got. And I've learned so much and that's been a great experience. So I'd like to empower more people to do that. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, no Gucci yet, basically. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> There's a few points I want to go into before we wrap up because it's yeah. been like two hours already. But yeah. um, what was the hardest or darkest day of the journey getting to, obviously we've talked about like kind of that succession point. Mm. Do, can you pinpoint a worst, maybe not day, but a period mm. where you thought, fuck me, this ain't going well? For sure. Well, oh, God, countless. Yeah. Like, so, tran- I would like the day, but like transitioning business models from agency to software was so hard. People had joined an agency who didn't want to join a software business. People who were in a software business were like, there was like, it was good when they were running separately, but trying to bring them together mm. was so difficult. And then, like I said, we referenced offline, there was a period in time where people just weren't paying their bills to us, we're getting very short on cash. And I was young and naive around how to manage that. And that was so stressful. Yeah. So all that sort of stuff is just, now I look back, unnecessary stress. Like always with hindsight, you know how to deal with it. But like, yeah, oh my God, I would say there's probably a handful of like five, what I would call real moments of awfulness. (laughs) And so, yeah, there's no plain saying. There's loads of obviously ups, up days and bad days in general attached to that. But oh mate, yeah, definitely like, a few things in time where you just think, why was I, why didn't I ask for help? Why did I do it that way, basically? Yeah. yeah for sure, for sure. And what do you think is next then? Because obviously, like you said, you're still fucking young. Yeah, well. Like, obviously, like, content cow for the next few years. For sure. Like, make this integration unbelievable with Adobe. Work really closely with them and do that for as long as that, like, makes sense. Yeah. And is exciting. That's the main thing investing in startups already like paying that forward giving that back like wanting to use like I said the capital I've got to accelerate other people's journeys and also part like my wisdom and knowledge if you like to make sure that happens as quickly as possible Mm. for them there's nothing more satisfying than watching other people succeed and grow that's Mm. my like thing anyway Um, do some like charitable work not really sure what that looks like yet I think that's really hard to just like jump at want to do meaningful things for the right yeah. causes so definitely put some time and effort into that um, and then long term I think a fund is potentially in the offing I haven't really thought it through at all I've got like the potential name for it and I know like the angles and stuff I might want to pursue but I think if you want to scale like my journey or what I feel like I've been able to do and the goodness of that a fund is basically and now I suddenly see why so many people do it the best way to do that because you can back lots of great people and 
you'll hear that like throughout this pod if you listen all the way to this point but like my thing around empowering people to be successful be good and like this whole like scale yourself scale management etc the ultimate way of doing that is like fulfilling entrepreneurs dreams because when you fulfill one entrepreneur's dreams you're fulfilling like potentially 10 100 200 300 if not a thousand other people's like career paths their goals etc yeah there's something super fulfilling about that basically and does good for the world so do you think you'd run another startup that one not decided that's definitely a serious contender so if it's not a fund it would be that um i think that like that's a bit like you've had a number one album and Mm. can you have another one yeah i think that's i think it's harder than people make out definitely wouldn't rule it out but like yeah it's quite you don't see that although like let's oh, like, take a famous band that's had loads of number one albums there's a lot that haven't yeah <laughs> so doing another startup tech like startup pure play straight up running it etc wouldn't rule it out but uh yeah gotta be right basically to do You're it starting a podcast so you said starting a podcast definitely yeah that's coming soon venture wisely um and uh just want to meet and network and you know do more stuff like this share the journey along the way for the next few years and make the adobe vision happen so yeah like that's the that's the immediate plan and not yeah. fundraise for a bit like yeah, this will yeah. be the first time in my adult life professional life where i don't have to actually fundraise for get a while. the blood pressure down yeah exactly yeah try and take some holidays <laughs> yeah geez, i feel like we could, we could have gone in a billion different angles um which is always a good sign when we get to two hours and i feel like i've asked half of what i wanted to speak about but final question then which i always ask now um you could probably say quite a lot is um it's cheesy as fuck but it's useful yeah if you could give advice to your I don't know what early 20s self I guess when you got started Mm. broadly speaking Mm. Mm. like life wise and entrepreneurship wise maybe if you had to pick like three things Mm -hmm. what would they be because I feel like you're well placed to actually give that advice to my audience firstly back yourself if you really really truly believe in whatever it is you're going to do like you've got to really believe it not as in I just want to make it I really believe whatever you're doing is worth doing go for it secondly cut the ego you're not that good (laughs) like you're not that good at whatever you think you're good at and actually even if you are really good at something back to all the stuff we've said you need to bring other people in to help you along the way and to scale so just surround yourself with amazing people um, and learn as much as you physically can and then thirdly would be like be really open-minded along the way i think one of the things i've been i didn't like so much when i was younger and i've embraced a lot more as i get older is other people's opinions on the right thing to do Mm. um and even if they don't like come out to be the choice that i make and i back myself instead of someone else like getting other people's opinions on stuff has opened my eyes up to so many different like learning experiences and sometimes doing things i don't agree with which turns out to be the right way to do it you just learn so much that way so yeah Yeah. don't be afraid to like embrace other people's points of views that you just don't agree with but you test and learn from it basically so Mm. they would be my three yeah but like business wise go for it like i said back to my first one back yourself like if you really believe in something you want to go for there's never been a better time to try so give it a go yeah fuck yeah yeah right well that said cool yeah jesus christ i really enjoy this pod this is why i do the, this is why i started doing this pod yeah man it's cool particularly episodes like this where i mean i get a lot of guests on obviously but someone that has actually built and exited a business which is mm. what i'm trying to do and mm. it's probably what most of my mates are trying to yeah. do oh, there's a lot of people watching um 
But yeah, it's fucking sick. It's great to chat. Um, if you like the pod, subscribe. There's plenty more episodes coming. i got a load in the pipeline. Tech. And yeah, catch you on the next one. Cheers for watching. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks.